Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. First up, I want to thank our supporting partners, and that's Earshots and YT Industries, who both have great offers for you. You'll have heard me talk about Earshots' great little Bluetooth headphones on the podcast before. They were designed with riding and activity in mind, and that shows as they're the only headphones that stay in my ears on the bike and in the gym. This year, Earshots launched an updated version of the product, which has made them even better. With 90% more bass response, the sound quality is much improved and you really get that drive from those bass heavy tracks when you're riding or training. Battery life is increased, they fit better and they're easier to use with an auto on off feature. For a couple of years now, they've been my go-to headphones for riding or going to the gym. If you're looking for some headphones for riding, training, running or just listening to your favourite podcasts, then Earshots have got you covered and as a downtime listener, they're offering you 10% off. All you need to do is to enter the code DOWNTIME22 at the checkout over on earshots.com and the discount will be applied at the final stage of the checkout process. That's DOWNTIME, all uppercase, no space, then the number 22 over at earshots.com. While you're here, don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. Just hit follow or subscribe in your podcast app now or there are buttons to help you get that done over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. We have a fully refreshed and expanded range of merch available now over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. It's really high quality, it's ethically sourced, it's delivered to you without any single-use plastics and all merch sales go directly to helping keep the podcast going. So head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop and check it all out. Christmas is getting closer and a subscription to Downtime EP is the perfect gift for the mountain biker in your life or something awesome to put on your very own Christmas list. EP takes the podcast into a printed format with writing and imagery from some of mountain biking's most talented creators. Put together by the wonderful team over at Misspent Summers, you can guarantee that EP is a very nice thing to own and read. Head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP to get yours now. All the links you need for all of this stuff are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. You can also get in touch and give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook by heading to at downtimepodcast. Today's episode is also supported by YT Industries, and last month I was lucky enough to be invited out to their HQ in Germany to spend some time with the team. We got some riding in on their awesome new gravel bike, the Scepter, which was released last week, and we put in some super fun laps on their decoy e-bikes too. While I was there, I also got the opportunity to sit down and record an episode with their founder, Marcus Flossman, and their new CEO, Sam Nichols. It was a great opportunity to get some time with these super busy guys, and we had a really interesting and pretty long chat, which is a bit different from anything I've recorded before. Hear from Marcus on where YT came from and how he ran it and built it for over 12 years. He shares the story behind some of the product names and also some of those amazing launch videos. Then we find out why Marcus decided to step down as CEO and how Sam came to take the role. Hear what Sam has done in his time there and how his background at Amazon has helped move the company forwards. And also hear what Marcus's new role as Chief Visionary Officer involves. I found this a fascinating insight and a very open conversation from two people at the top of one of the most popular gravity-focused brands on the planet. I hope you enjoy it too. So without further ado, here's Marcus Flossman and Sam Nichols. Marcus Flossman and Sam Nichols, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. And first up, a massive thank you for uh, inviting me out here to experience YTHQ. And we've already been out on the trails uh, this morning and slid around and had a good bit of fun on some slippery autumn leaves and roots. Uh, so yeah, thank you. Thank you for the invite. It's welcome. been fun. Welcome. Nice it's great work. to have you here. Good stuff. Well, let's start um, 
as we start a lot of our episodes and wind the clock back for both of you. And Marcus, we'll start start with you um, and get a bit of background before YT. Mm-hmm. Um, am I right in thinking you studied marketing? No, I never studied anything. Okay. <laughs> Everything came more or less by chance. Really? Or by accident, let's say uh, that. Interesting, okay. Yeah, um, basically I, I followed my heart, I followed the passion what I had inside and that's why I ended up here, Okay. finally. Yeah, and a passion for you early on was weightlifting. Yes, definitely. So maybe I um, yeah, go a few years back in time. So when I was 13, I started doing bodybuilding. So uh-huh. I really fell in love with the sport. And when I was 15, I decided to become a pro bodybuilder. Okay. So I was really focused on um, earning my money in the future with the sport, what I really love. Yeah. So uh, everything during this time went quite well. So when I was 20, I won the German uh, championships and I was qualified for the European and World Champs. And during the the preparation time uh, for the next contest, I got injured. I injured myself during oh, yeah. uh, training. Yeah. I did uh, quite heavy squats and okay. wasn't so concentrated this day. And mm-hmm. I figured out that the barbell rolled a little bit forward on my neck and I bent my back. And finally, I ended up with a double disc prolapse. Oh, man. Yeah. And this with the age of 20. And this was so hard that I nearly had to stop uh, doing weightlifting for a year, uh-huh. roundabout. I went every week to the doctor, I got injections, painkillers, whatever, because I couldn't sit on on the office chair anymore. It was quite horrible. And uh, at this time, I was super frustrated, of course, because I I spent my whole, not my childhood, but uh, my teenage years uh, into into this kind of sport and into my future. Uh So more or less figuring out that I have to stop more or less was quite hard. So... um, yeah, how I ended up in uh, with with mountain biking was quite funny because one of the doctors advised that I should stay away from the weights for some time and do something else, something different. Maybe yeah, told me get a bike, go yeah. out in the woods, go riding, <laughs> and yeah, so that's how I ended up on a mountain bike. This was in 1997 uh-huh. uh, on a on a Scott Hartel with 100 millimeter travel, the Rudy TT fork, yeah, um, yeah. Ro- Rockshock City, and yeah, that's how I. Uh, became a mountain biker more or less and honestly it was um, for me it was at this time I was used to uh, work out in the gym in a basement gym Uh so I went from the office to the gym I never saw the daylight and (laughs) now I found myself in in the middle of nature in the woods sunshine it was quite nice pretty good so (laughs) love love at first ride yeah 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 Yeah, absolutely I I yeah, it wasn't real mountain biking at this time, so I just went on um, yeah fire roads, gravel roads like that, and mm-hmm. tried to get a feeling for the bike. Yeah, and yeah, but I improved quite fast and really fell in love with it. Awesome. Yeah, good stuff. And before YT, you were working in the gym industry as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I um, I worked for a German fitness chain group. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started there in year two thousand, um, they had only five gyms. Okay. And when I quit my job in two thousand eight, we had already a hundred. So wow. yeah, the expansion yeah. went quite quite fast. Yeah. So um, I was still connected to the fitness industry. Yeah. But the passion for mountain biking grew year by year. But I never thought about 
uh, entering the bicycle industry somehow. Uh -huh. I, I, I saw it as my hobby and yeah, yeah. Uh, I love to go after work out in the woods with my buddies, building berms and, and, and kickers and yeah, just having fun, having a beer afterwards. Yeah. So this, this was part of my lifestyle. Nice. And what was your role there within the gym, tra the gym chain? Uh, I was head of marketing. Okay. I, I started there as um, a gym manager, uh -huh. more or less. And um, the last four years, five years, I was head of marketing. Okay. So I was basically a one-man show. Yeah. So I, I founded a marketing department there and <laughs> uh, built it up till the day I went. Yeah. And all that marketing is self-taught. Yes, everything yeah. was self-taught. Yeah. Um, I've never studied. Uh, I read a lot of books, yeah. of course, at this yeah. time to get into it. And I was always interested in uh, strong brands because I always want to know why are these brands are, uh, so strong? What are they doing different? Why are people willing to pay more for a certain product mm -hmm. just to get part of this lifestyle or this community or whatever? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a little bit in my blood, I would say. Okay, yeah. cool. Sam, we'll switch over to you and uh, get a bit of your background before we get more into the YT side. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about those early days. You studied engineering, yeah? Yeah, I studied engineering. I I grew up in Oregon. Maybe mm -hmm. start with that uh, in the U.S. And uh, did have a mountain bike. I had a Trek 800, although that was much more of a, probably even less than Marcus, just getting, getting up some fire trails and mm -hmm. doing some very basic stuff. Went to university in San Diego, my first degree. Um, biking has always been a huge part of my transportation mode. I've never okay. driven a car to any job or to the university. I've always, always biked yeah. every single day, uh, except for two years when I lived in New York and then I walked. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, I did engineering. I ended up doing two degrees in engineering, uh, then worked as an engineer for a couple of years uh -huh. and then decided I want to get into business uh, and then went back to university again and got a third degree uh, in New York as I got an MBA. And then didn't know what I wanted to do and kind of took the easy path of uh, not deciding. And I was a consultant for a couple of years, uh, uh, delayed some of the decision, and then ended up at Amazon in Germany in 2010 uh, and worked at Amazon for nine years. Okay. Amazing. What were you doing at Amazon? So I started off as a buyer in video games. Uh, and at the time, it was interesting with Amazon, they didn't, you didn't need to be an expert in your field. Mm -hmm. Amazon likes people who are data-driven and know that if they don't know what they're talking about, <laughs> they can go and look at data to find the answers okay. rather than bringing in experts who think they know what they're doing but don't necessarily know. So uh, Amazon at that time taught me to rely heavily on data okay. and customer interest data and, and what do customers want rather than thinking that applying what you think you want yeah. uh, onto the product. So I started off as a buyer for two years. Then I switched over to lead the prime team in Germany. So that was mm -hmm. a five-year stint doing Prime and learned all about membership programs and digital benefits and uh, fast delivery speeds, kind of the classic Prime stuff that probably people know listening to this. Yeah. Uh, then had the opportunity to take over the Amazon Turkey business and launched Amazon Turkey. So the equivalent okay. of Amazon.com or yeah. Co UK uh, for Turkey. And that was my, I did that for the last two years and that was a really fantastic experience. I really loved uh, that and was really tough and, and really challenging. And um, and then towards the end of that, uh, started thinking about, okay, what's, what is life beyond Amazon? Mm -hmm. um, and then 
YT kind of slowly came into the picture. Yeah, a very a very different kind of environment, but we'll talk about right. That. And and I, mean, I should say that through that, I I, I kind of I, I'm, I've always been into sports. So similar to Marcus, I've been also very active. I, I did. Uh-huh. I was in rowing all through university. I was rowing. Then I got to a phase where I was in ultimate frisbee and I was playing on an ultimate frisbee team for a couple of years. And then I got into rock climbing for five years. And then in 2007, when I moved to Munich. Um, a lot of my friends were into mountain biking. I'd already biked a whole bunch. And so I was like, oh, mountain bike, that looks fun. Um, got my first fully, so full suspension. I had a Cube 100 millimeter. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was with the guys doing, as we did in 2007, everybody wearing spandex, going to Lago di Gada, doing you know pretty hard you know 2,000 meter vertical uphill and then really technical downhill stuff, but always on natural trails. Yeah. So that was like every year I would go with between 30 and 100 of my friends not on the um, Riva Bike Festival weekend because it was all so full, but one of the weekends before or after yeah. going down and um, we would go biking for four days in a row. And um, that's kind of how, when I really got into mountain biking 2007 until 2014 was probably the peak of my first mountain biking yeah, hobby yeah. times. And then I had kids and it dipped down for a while. And then 2019, it came back and that's how it kind of, that's basically it coming back, got me into YT. Yeah. Awesome. And was was mountain bike racing part of that no. formative period for either of you? No. But you have both been racing pretty recently, right? You were saying, Marcus, that uh, <laughs> you both so you both came to Ard Rock in the UK, which a lot yeah. of listeners will know that event is huge in the UK and and a super good event. If you've never been, go. And you guys came over this year. Tell us a bit about your Ard Rock experience. It was such a nice experience. It was my first race ever. I never had the chance to 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 race somewhere else so yeah i came over um competed in the uh, e enduro class yeah. and honestly it was it was a banger <laughs> i'm now i'm now addicted to i guess next year two or three races will follow definitely For sure. it was yeah. so much fun yeah that's cool yeah. and you had a, a good good result right 18th out of 16 18th, yeah. for your first race yeah. happy with that thank you yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> cool what about you sam i had we had a really good time i mean i think that that's one of the things I really loved about Ard Rock was we were able to do it with the group and we were about eight or 10 of us from, from YT and some of our friends. Um, and <clears throat> that was a really great experience just to go with your buddies race. So you have racing, but a lot of time also just to talk and, and see really fantastic scenery. And mm-hmm. I mean, Ard Rock is also, you know, it's middle of nowhere, uh, in a place that usually you can't bike. Um, and so you're exposed to something that you don't see normally and you're riding trails you've never ridden on before, which is exciting and fun. Um, and yeah, we had a, you know, we were out for eight hours probably. You know, we, we definitely took our time. We took a couple of pub stops along the way. As you should do. <laughs> hard rock, that's how it works. Yeah. And, uh, that's got, why I love it. <laughs> we got lucky that it wasn't raining. And so it wasn't a total, you know, it wasn't a mess. It, it was fun to ride. It uh-huh. wasn't, you were worried about falling all the time. Um, and, and, but at the same time, you know, being competitive and I was annoyed because I took a stupid crash and lost 30 seconds and that, uh, I had, I'd really wanted to push Marcus more than I did, but, um, <laughs> next year. And you were 104th out of 311 in the 40 to 49 enduro. Yeah. Was, I, was, with that? Um, I, I mean, if I added another 30 seconds down, then it would have been even better. But yeah, it's, I mean, I should say we're not here to win races. We're here to have good times. Um, but certainly, and actually one of the things for me that's been most rewarding the last couple of years is like now working within the bike industry, 
a lot of my friends or the people, our colleagues that we bike with are really good. Or occasionally we even get lucky if we get to bike with professionals, uh, which is even crazier. Yeah. Um, and when you bike with really good people, you get better really quickly. And that's, for sure. I think, for me, is I just see every day, every time I go biking, I see myself even taking big steps. Um, I mean, also getting on better bikes helps, uh, you know, yeah. and, and our role gives us the opportunity to, you know, try out the best bikes that we make uh, and then ride with really great people. And, and that's, for me, even more rewarding is to see, oh, wow, I could actually do way bigger jumps than I could before. Or I couldn't even jump before. Uh, and now I'm starting to feel more comfortable doing that. And um, I, I used to crash a lot more and now I crash less. That's good too. That good is definitely a good thing. Yeah. And so will you be following Marcus next year and getting some more race entries, do you think? Yeah, we've talked about it, that we were going to do that. And, and I did a Southern Enduro race also this year, so I, I did two, uh-huh. uh, which was which was a lot of fun. I mean, I think we have to – we've been looking to find similar events in Germany, which is a bit harder. Okay. Uh, UK seems to have a bit more of a this – the ability to enter more relaxed races because, yeah. you know, we're not there to, you know, we don't want to be doing 10 practice runs to – hit the one run itself like we want to go and have fun and and chill and and spend time with uh, our colleagues and you know talk to customers and uh, so we have to find the similar vibe mm. in other countries um, yeah. at least there's uh, there are enough pups on the route and it's all fine <laughs> that's the that's yeah. the main criteria right, for race selection. <laughs> so if you've got a relaxed event with pubs on the route get in yeah. touch with you guys right yeah definitely that's, that sounds right <laughs> <laughs> good stuff marcus let's get stuck into where whitey comes from and um I think it was an all-important day at the dirt jumps. Yeah, it was in 2007. I um, was on a local tur- uh, dirt jump track here in uh, Forcham, where the company is based now also. And I met there two young guys at the age of around 14, 15. And they did so good on their cheap, rubbish supermarket bikes. They did 360s over the tables. And this was <laughs> stuff or a backflip, what you normally only saw on um, on pro contests yeah. and not on your local dirt jump track. I, I, I was so excited. So I talked to the guys and said, hey, guys, it's amazing what, what talent you guys have. So why don't you get a real dirt jump bike, a bike what is suitable for this kind of riding? Because it could be super dangerous when you overshoot a jump and you land into the flat, the fork can crack and you can get bad uh, injuries. So, um, yeah, one of the guys uh, looked at me and said, yeah, we would, but we uh, can't afford. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I went back home this day, I thought about um, that's, that is quite a shame because um, how could it be that a dirt jump bike what contains only a, a steel frame with a suspension fork and a rear brake no no shifting nothing else and was over 1000 euro at this time uh-huh. and then I thought okay there must be a way to offer a high-end product uh, way cheaper mm-hmm. and um, considering also DH bikes at this time a good DH bike was around about five six thousand euros and uh, KDM 250 SXF motocross bike was six and a half thousand euros and I, I didn't got it honestly. Yeah. So um, this is how the idea uh, came up with, with YT and YT stands for Young Talent, Young Talent Industries um, because of those two guys. That's awesome. It's yeah. such a great like founder story. But I mean, you make that sound easy. How do you then go about creating a dirt jump bike? Because you've got no background in this. There's no yeah. like engineering in your past, right? Yeah. I I had a little bit of experience, of course, in the in the bike industry because we launched um, 
um, a website before, a platform. It was called uh, Sponsory.com. It uh -huh. was a little bit like MySpace, but with the benefit that you can get in uh, contact with with sponsors. Uh, okay. Not on the big screen. It was not about getting huge sponsoring deals. It was more or less if you, for example, have uh, you are three, four kids and you are a downhill uh, amateur racing um, team, mm -hmm. then you can get in contact with a tire sponsor, for example. Okay. Get support for tires and tubes and stuff like that. And so I was a little bit already in the bike industry, so I knew that most of the high-end uh, frames were produced in uh, in Taiwan at mm -hmm. this time. And I also had a friend who helped me a little bit in, in the beginning, um, Niels Peter Jensen, uh, NPJ, his name was a former pro uh, dirt jump rider who already had um, a brand, the NPJ frames. And yeah. so I got in contact with an agent in uh, Taiwan. Okay. So I just booked... Uh, a flight to Taiwan, <laughs> flew over, As you do, yeah. met this guy, and uh, talked about my vision, what I what I have um, to create a dirt jump bike for, yeah, I would say half the price. And yeah, he helped me uh, out to find the right um, vendors uh, mm -hmm. who were able to produce this kind of frame. Um, the thing is, to create a dirt jump frame, it was not that you need um, a lot of knowledge about engineering, whatever. I knew what the geometry uh, data mm -hmm. should be, and uh, the vendors itself, they they exactly knew, okay, the wall thicknesses on, on this area have to be this and that. So this was quite easy. The next step, when I went into uh, full suspension frames, then it became tricky. And yes. then this, this was the bigger step. Yeah, fair enough. So this initially was all in your spare time. This was in my spare time. I yeah. was still fully employed at the fitness uh, company yeah. at this time, and I did it by side. And um, um, together with my with my best friend, uh, Jacob, um, he's also co-founder of um, YT Industry, uh -huh. I told him the idea about uh, YT creating bikes, not, in, uh, not about... Uh, talking not about a huge bike company, um, more or less like a small one for the German-speaking markets, two to three different models. Uh -huh. And he was so on fire that he motivated me to yeah to go for it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's so cool. That's how, how, how many bikes did you order initially? Uh, first one was a batch of 150 bikes. Mm -hmm. And the cool story about this, um, because... There was no chance for me to um, to go with those um, uh, with this product into brick and mortar um, stores. So yeah. I thought about okay, target group is quite young. Let's go uh, online um, direct, save all the margins mm -hmm. of uh, of the middlemen and pass it as savings to uh, the end consumer. So okay, we 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 set up a, a website with shop function. It, wasn't working this well, but somehow it worked out. And I drove with one of the first bikes uh, to Munich to the guys from the Freeride magazine and asked if they could publish it in the next issue to get a little bit of pro pro um, yeah, advertising yeah. uh, for it because we didn't have money to advertise it, mm -hmm. really. So um, And they put it right away in an already running a comparison test with all the big brands from the States. And, of course, I was super nervous because it was the first <laughs> bike we ever did. Uh, but four weeks later, when the, um, as the new issue came out, um, I, I went to the um, paper store, grabbed the magazine, had a look at it, and said, fuck, I won the test. We won the test. It was the best price um, performance ratio. And after 10 days, those 150 bikes were gone. Insane. And yeah. you were building those in your mother-in-law's garage, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> By hand. Very cool. Yeah. That's really, really like nice that that bike is still in the lineup as well right the still in the lineup yeah, yeah. um it evolved a little bit of course yeah. uh but basically it's 
quite the same bike. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So you had that first bike kind of fly out after that, you know, that Freeride magazine review. And then you made the decision to step away from what I assume was a pretty well-paid, it was quite, a well-paid quite nice job. Job, definitely. Yeah. Um, your daughter had just started school at that point? And she wasn't even at school at this point, I guess, the year after she came. Okay. In. Yeah, but so you've got family to support, yeah, family, all of this kind of stuff. And yeah, we had lease running and whatever, so yeah. um, quite a lot of costs yeah. um, to cover, but a good job, and then I decided to quit my job. So how do you get the confidence to like follow that passion and that vision and... It's not easy, right? I think a lot of people have great ideas. Very few people work out how to execute and like yeah. take that leap. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. Wasn't definitely an uh, not an um, easy decision. This was something where I thought about at least two, three days, or maybe a little bit longer. <laughs> two, three days. Okay. No. Um, it was like really I had the feeling that I have to do it. It was not um, something where, where I thought, no, I should stay at my safe job or uh -huh. whatever. No, I really had a feeling I have to do it. And yeah, so and because of the success of the of, of the first product, I thought, okay, now it's now it's the right time and I mm -hmm. quitted my job. My wife at this time wasn't this happy, but um, we managed it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. And you had that direct-to-consumer model from the start, which yeah. makes complete sense. But it was quite unique then, certainly yeah. in the bike industry. There was some pushback, right, from the industry to some extent, like yeah. like companies trying to stop you working in that way. Definitely. So we had also um, OE um, suppliers who were not willing to sell products to us mm -hmm. because they said, okay, we we um, yeah damaged the market with that and it's too cheap and mm -hmm. they don't want to have it and, and so on. And also um, competitors were, of course, not so amused about what we are doing. But basically, yeah, we... We try to stick to our bath and uh, yeah, set everything in. Yeah, good. It seems to be working. And then right from the kind of get-go, I think you really focused on the, the DNA of the brand. Like yes. what is the brand? Tell us from your perspective why you think that's so important and also how you would go about defining YT's DNA. Yeah. So um, the next step was quite important because when we decided to go into um, full suspension bikes it was not about cross-country bikes or all mountain or whatever it was really about creating a free ride or dh bike and uh, this time a slope style full suspension bike so you already see there the dna lies more or less in gravity mountain biking and this is where we're coming from that's what i love to do still love to do and um, this is important for us that every new product carries this um, dna mm -hmm. so we are not focused till today we are not focused on um, creating the lightest bike on the market or whatever so in every category the focus is always on downhill um, performance okay and is that is it that simple would you say like you can distill it down to that that's the like underlying thing that I guess yeah underpins the decisions that you make as a company yeah definitely uh, when it comes to specification of the bikes and of course um, geometry and um, kinematics this is always the main point uh -huh. so our yt should always perform well in downhill and that's the key yeah if it's not doing that it's not a yt yeah are there are there other elements to the to yt that make yt yt or, or do you think it really does distill down to just that i think product wise there are those two points um gravity orientated mm -hmm. and a good um, price performance ratio okay. 
Yeah. This is this is also key because yes. uh, young talent. We want to support young people to get them on good products and high quality products that they are able to compete on a high level mm -hmm. as well. Um, this is on the product side, but we have also a brand side, mm -hmm. and this is um, similar important to us. Um, yeah. I always say it's one of our um, USPs because we do marketing or brand campaigns a little bit different. So it's not the typical stuff what you see in the bike industry. So it goes a bit further and uh, <laughs> we are not doing that because of we think ah, that could work or, or or the people want to see that it's really it comes um, from our heart as well like like um, like the bike so if we have a beer for example afterwards and uh, talk about ideas for campaigns and there is Maybe something coming up where we say, yeah, that would be cool, but ah, honestly, we can't do that. We did it in the past. <laughs> and um, th uh, this more or less made a difference. Yeah, nice. Let's talk a bit about the Capra because I think that mm -hmm. first Capra was a really significant bike for you as a brand. It feels like, for me, that was when YT came onto my radar living in the UK. Um, yeah, talk us through that bike from your perspective because it lives on. It's in its yeah. fourth iteration at the moment. Is that right? Um, Mark four, third, Mark three, third, Mark three, third. Mark yeah, three, uh, the first one came out two thousand fourteen. Uh -huh. Yeah, um, we already had an enduro bike before. It was called the Wicked, yeah. but it was not on the same level. So um, already when we were ready at this time with the Wicked, we decided to go for uh, for the next version for a completely new bike. Okay. And yeah, we quite nailed it with the Capra at this time because it was a carbon fiber um, enduro bike um, with an extremely good price performance ratio. We nailed it with the um, geometry, with the specification at this time. And while you guys in the in the UK noticed it um, it was probably because of uh, Steve Jones from the Dirt Mac because yeah, okay. he came over visited us yeah. had a try and yeah wrote things like or oh, it blows everything out of the water by a mile and yeah, things I remember like that, that. Yeah, yeah. and from this point on YT uh, wasn't an, on an international stage yeah. I'd say. and that that in itself brings challenges right so let's talk a bit about some of the growth during that time that you were CEO of the business yeah. which was, I think was that 12 years you were CEO yeah, since uh, yeah, till till when do you came in? Two thousand twenty. Twenty, yeah, twelve years. Twelve years. Yeah. Okay, it's a long, it's a long run, and the product's yeah. definitely evolved a lot over that time. Like, tell us a bit about how you would describe the progress of YT's kind of products, both from a development perspective and also the product offering. I mean, you said earlier you were aiming for this small bike company with maybe two or three models, and it's. It's yeah. definitely been uh, steadily growing into something quite a lot bigger. Yeah, absolutely. The thing really was that um, there was always a huge demand um, for our products. So um, every every year we didn't have enough bikes um, to fulfill the demand of the market. So, um, but. Our, on the other side, we also invested every cent what we earned into new products. Uh -huh. So we always had, um, from from a certain point on, I would say from 2010, 2011 on, we had the goal to become one of the best brands worldwide. Okay. Uh, so this switched quite um, quite fast <laughs> after the first two to three years. And then we saw that's not a, a big bubble or this is something what we can really achieve if we work yeah. hard and if, if we stay true to our core then it's um achievable and yeah so we invested everything so every year we came up with a new product and yeah grew the product portfolio over uh, over the years and the existing bikes we developed further so yeah and building that capability i guess like you said like 
designing a full suspension bike is not necessarily something you were in a position to do from the start. Yeah, yeah. It was it hard to build that team to find all the right people. Oh, this was also something really nice because. Um, in 2009, I met uh, a friend of mine again because um, the thing is, uh, Stefan Willeret, who, who was also um, yeah shareholder of the company, uh, he came into a local bike shop in a suit and I was there to buy some spare parts. And I asked him, Stefan, what are you doing already? Because I knew him um, from the past. We were yeah, several times on um, mountain bike trips and so on. And he told me that he is now working in the automotive industry and he is taking care about um, suspension concepts and, and so on. And I knew that he was mountain biker from the first minute on, so since since end of the 80s. And um, yeah, I told him what I'm doing at the moment and um, I saw a sprinkle in his eyes and said, <laughs> okay, I want to join. And and uh, it took half a year, and then he switched uh, over to YT, yeah. and um, he let the or he set up the um, development department. Okay. Yeah, and he was the engineer what we always needed in the beginning. Yeah, perfect addition yeah. to the crew. Let's talk about this marketing side, and, and it is your background, and that comes across strongly mm -hmm. with within YT, and it's always had a personality and a style. I would say that is not afraid to go against the convention and the norms of the bike industry like there was quite a lot of me too things going yeah. on and you guys from the very get-go i guess with a different sales model everything you weren't afraid to kind of come in and disrupt across the board and i'm really interested to find out a bit more about some of that stuff um let's start off with some of the brand names because you've got some some unique brand names and i think there's some backstory to some of these that maybe i i don't know um <laughs> there are a lot of backstories there <laughs> go on, give, give us some give us some backstory on a few of the product names because okay uh let's let's start uh with the tours with the downhill bike uh -huh. it had nothing to do uh, with tuesday uh <laughs> in germany we say tours to somebody like uh do it okay just do it so with this bike more or less you can do everything it, um, it's capable of doing everything okay. for that. So um, with the decoy, it was quite nice. I was in uh, in San Clemente in, in, in the US at the supermarket. And um, there, was a, there was a huge cupboard with, with wines, different wine stuff. And there was a wine called decoy with a wooden duck on it. And I said, fuck, the name sounds, sounds, sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know, knew at this time what, um, what decoy means. Yeah. So I figured out, okay, it's a duck what you use for hunting. So <laughs> it, um, it, it's supposed to be something, but it isn't. So um, I thought, fuck, this sounds really cool <laughs> and will, would fit to our bike because the decoy, our uh, EMTB, should uh, appear like a normal mountain bike uh -huh. and not like a typical e-bike. Yeah. So I said, okay, this was the one where we got um, the decoy. Chefsy was also quite nice um, because the idea of our uh, all-mountain trail bike was this is like your best friend. It's a bike what you can use for nearly everything and uh, Chefsy is a guy from Wales. Um, Really, there is, that, there is a Jeffsy. Is there, there is a Jeffsy, and uh, Steve Jones told me about him. And uh, this is a guy like when you when you need help to put the fridge in the second floor, whatever, he will be there or help the kids building trails, stuff like that. Yeah. A true friend when you need him, and that's why we call that. the the bike Jeffsy. Love it. Yeah. Let, and um, it was Jeffsy was one of your, I guess, big launch videos where. The, 
it was really very obvious that you guys were doing things differently. Yeah, with the first Chefsy, we did a campaign, um, especially the teaser campaign was was quite uh, different, where a beautiful lady said, okay, I hate Chefsy. And we did some advertisement in the magazines, print issues, online and so on. And it was only, I hate Chefsy. <laughs> end, of the, uh, end of the story was uh, in the video, of course, um, because... Um, um, his um, her husband was uh, only um, on the trails all the time with the bike with yeah. his new best friend Chefsy. That's why he had him. So so the friendship story came up, and then uh, for the Mark II version, we wanted to bring uh, friendship on a on a new level. So we wrote an ode um, to friendship, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, got Christopher Walken on board. How I mean, how does that happen? Just asking. <laughs> Yeah, just asking. Um, we worked together with a media agency at this time. We said, okay, we want to have Christopher Walken doing that. And he yeah, said, yeah. forget it. It's way too expensive. <laughs> it's out of the budget. And he <laughs> he only did three advertisement uh, campaigns in his whole career. Now he's too old, blah, blah, blah. So I said, okay, but please ask. No, it doesn't make sense. So at the third time, I said, please ask. So they went out and um, contacted uh, the agent. Uh, we sent over the script. And uh, yeah, finally he said, okay, he will do it for a really, really reasonable price. I can't say it here, but it was it was a joke. Yeah. And uh, he only did it because he loved the story. Cool. And the only thing was, okay, uh, we have to fly um, to the US to film it because okay. we don't want to fly overseas anymore because of his age. Yeah. It just was an amazing experience. W were you there? Did you go out yes, for that? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why Christopher Walken? Why was he your, like, the one person you wanted? It was the one person because I knew him from uh, different other movies and when he's holding a speech or whatever, that you get goosebumps. And this was the feeling what we wanna, yeah. wanted to have or to create with with uh, our campaign as well. Yeah, and kind of blew up the internet really with yeah. that, certainly in a mountain bike world, yeah. right? Yeah. Nice. And uh, Vinnie Jones has been involved? Vinnie Jones has been involved as well, yeah, for the decoy campaign, The Hunt. It was a perfect fit. And uh, for the last Capra, we had uh, Mats Mikkelsen mm -hmm. also on board. It was um, during COVID lockdown. And so I, it was... Uh, Basically, exactly the same. Uh, we were just asking. We didn't expect that we can really afford it. But he's a he's a biker. He's a road biker and mountain biker. He yeah. knew um, YT before, so um, story was cool. The first part of the campaign uh, for the um, for the Mark uh, Two version um, was cool. So he said yes. Yeah, came over. And you've done Japanese anime with the Izzo. Yes. Yeah, that was a pretty left field. Yeah, this was also this was quite short clip, only two minutes, I guess, roundabout. Yeah, just under, yeah. I think, yeah. And uh, this is if we when we do things, it's not like that we try to repeat every time the same. Even if we now had uh, three campaigns with um, Hollywood stars, but there's also something in us where I said, okay, now let's think different. Let's make something different. And uh, for for the ISO campaign, it was exactly the same. We thought, okay, let's bring something on the on the new level with uh, anime, and then yeah. We reached out uh, to the guys from from um, the line who are mm -hmm. also doing the um, music videos for the gorillas and ah, all the stuff. Sweet. So yeah, so we are always focused on high quality production. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so yeah. this is nothing what we do in our basement. So this is something. How do you keep you like you set the bar pretty high pretty quickly? How do you keep kind of? Yeah, you're it's making your life difficult. Yeah, huh? it's getting harder and harder. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so. Interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing what's yeah. next.
interesting stuff. Let's talk about the sports market inside of it mm -hmm. because, um, you know, working with athletes and getting involved in competition and events is obviously a key part of strategy yeah. for a lot of brands and a really good way to bring attention to the bikes. And again, it looks like you, you know, you took a different approach to that, I think, to other, other more established brands. Yeah, I would say, uh, especially in the early years, we were quite focused on uh, free ride riders. Yeah. Um, first of all, to prove that our bikes are really capable of um, doing those stuff. And on the other side, of course, um, also g uh, gaining experience from pro riders yeah. and getting feedback uh, for the development. Yeah, and um, yeah, so uh, we worked together with Andrea Lacondigi, for example, and um, CamSync. And it was quite nice because um, the tours was more or less developed as a uh, free ride bike a big bike for free ride riding and andrew uh, won the rampage with the bike and uh, why we switched over to racing uh, was really because um, one guy asked me if our bike could also win a world cup race and not only a free ride event and i said okay let's give it a try we just need a rider who is capable of uh, winning a, a world cup race and then yeah we thought aaron quinn could be the right guy but that's a i mean that's a fair commitment right not many not many brands go into World Cup racing and go straight away and go after like one of the biggest names on the circuit. You, you don't, what gives you that confidence, I guess, to go in? Because it could, it could have gone badly. It didn't. Yeah. But like if Aaron hadn't done well on that bike, having been in, you know, a really good form yeah. prior to that, the risk is... It's pretty huge. The risk is quite huge, you're right. But um, of course, he had the chance to to test and try the bike um, before. And he felt so confident on the bike that he said, okay, definitely, that's the bike what I what I ever wanted. And this is the bike what I would design like that. Yeah. yeah. And it turned out yeah. pretty well, didn't it? it? First race, <laughs> first place, that's, that's how we roll. <laughs> you couldn't really? ask for more than that, yeah. could you? And it honestly, no joke, it was a bike out of the box. Yeah. It's what, only the suspension was tuned for shim stack wise to um, Aaron's needs. But everything else, more or less, frame, all the parts were out of stock, yeah. uh, out of the box. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Have you changed the way you look at the sports market inside over over time? Like, are you working with athletes in different ways or in different areas now? Yeah, um, we we went a little bit back to our roots, to our core, supporting uh, young guns, young people, and that's why we um, stopped uh, Mob World Cup team after yeah. three years, and um, instead of that, we did the Mob uh, World Tour where um, Martin Whiteley uh, flew really over the whole planet, different countries, Australia, Japan, whatever, and um, for, yeah, on, on the hunt for um, new talents. Mm -hmm. uh, this, was, this was something amazing, and I, I don't know any other company who ever did this. Yeah, and that's where Ocean O'Callaghan came from, right? Yes, exactly. He then went on to take junior yeah. world championships yeah. Yeah. in the following season. Yeah, exactly. So it works pretty. It works pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> what um, what about those athletes when it comes to product development? Like, obviously, mm -hmm. they have this importance within, you know, placing the product and showing what they're capable of. But are they also involved in the product development? Yes, side? they are involved, and everybody has the same chance um, to get involved. But there are also difference uh, differences in the riders. Some can really explain what they need mm -hmm. and how it should be, and this is super worthwhile um, for us. Um, but others maybe are not so into the technical side and of course we listen to them what they think or feel but um, then we have to guess what exactly the point is but 
basically, of course, um, the the part of the athlete for the development is super important for us. Yeah, and I guess you you have to somehow translate those requirements as well because yes. not many people are riding rampage, yeah, right? Exactly, and also it it doesn't make sense to uh, to develop a bike was what is only rideable from a pro rider, for example. Mm-hmm. So it uh, must fit every everybody more or less. Yeah, like yeah. we like we did with the uh, with the tours by accident more or less. So it was able to to win the rampage, was able to win um, the world cup, but also um, average riders um, can get along with the bike easily. Yeah, yeah, and I guess that's just you being able to achieve what you set out from the start, right? Yeah. To create something that's accessible yep. to people but can enable anyone to perform at the level that you'd saw at those dirt jumps right yeah. people that were living living the dream living kind of the thing dream. yeah <laughs> another thing that you uh, brought in in your time as ca was you started the yt mills which is kind of a different mm-hmm. take um obviously you've gone down the direct-to-consumer path at what point did you realize that having some like showroom kind of piece of the puzzle was it going to be a good yeah. idea yeah first of all as a direct to consumer brand um, you appear online this yeah. is just the first point and then you have the chance during during the season to show your product uh, to customers on events on races and so on but there's nothing what goes through the whole year and um, because YT is quite brand focused mm-hmm. we said okay we should first of all give people the opportunity to get in touch with a bike any time of the year and also to um, to promote or uh, let's say to give to create a kind of experience world for uh, for consumers where they can get in touch not only with the bikes but also with the campaigns and all, everything what we are doing. That's why a mill uh, in the inside looks a little bit different than to I would say than a normal bike shop. Yes, it definitely yeah. does. There's a, there's yeah. a, a style to it. Yeah. You feel like you're inside certainly with the ISO part in the the UK mill. Yeah. You feel like you're in the the ad campaign, yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, and was was there an like an obvious impact of the mills on kind of growth and the progression of the company? Did you see a change there? Um, the thing is, with uh, the mill in the UK, for example, we had to open it during um, uh, or between the two lockdowns. Yeah, yeah. So this was quite hard to measure. And in the US, we opened it one year after we entered uh, the market there. Uh So um, there we felt a huge difference, especially uh, in this area of um, Southern uh, California. Yeah, yeah. uh, That helped a lot. And um, this is nothing where we say we have to be in every city with a mill or uh, 10 in, in in each country uh-huh. but i think in on um, some stra- in some strategic places it would yeah works, it, it works well. definitely makes sense yeah yeah it's nice for customers i guess to be able to go and yeah. get hands on and yeah. and get help with choosing yeah. a bike as well it's not everyone i guess some people are very happy choosing through a website mm-hmm. and they have the knowledge and stuff to get there but yeah. for other people it's nice to yeah, get hands it's, on and and it's not only about testing a bike or getting in in touch with the brand it's also a community thing because people um, people meet there um, and go uh, for a ride uh, together on saturday for example yeah, and yeah. It's, especially in in the uk james is doing a great job with his team they're doing constantly um yeah family member rides and things like that and they have so, like a watch party for the world yes, cups i think you exactly, can go down and watch yeah. the world cup racing so it's really and, a community thing as well yeah it's cool so in those 12 years that you spent as ceo of mm-hmm. yt what for you what were the key challenges in kind of driving the company forwards and seeing that growth and progression 
I would say the biggest key challenge uh, back in the days was that we were quite, um, yeah, we were not quite good financed. Uh-huh. So um, we didn't have an investor on board. Okay. So we had to self-finance everything and work together um, with banks only. So, um, of course, money was always an issue. And growing pains like uh, from one year to another, uh, a few thousand more bikes means, okay, how how uh, to take care about uh, the quality production-wise, production capacity, so supply chain, this was a huge topic. Uh-huh. So um, that's why I felt that I was also forced to deal with the typical business stuff, what you had to deal with as a, as a CEO. But this was not the stuff where I really had fun with, honestly. Yeah. And there are, are always guys uh, who can do this better. And uh-huh. if you can focus on your own uh, strength, I think this is, this is the, the goal what everybody should have. Yeah. So when did you start thinking about like, How can I do more of what I'm good at and what I enjoy? Oh, this was already four or five years ago. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But not an easy thing, right? It's it's your baby. You've built this up. It's a big deal to put the running, you know, the day-to-day running of a business in someone else's hands. How do you go about looking for a new CEO? It really came also by by chance because um, I think it doesn't work if you you try to find somebody somewhere or you on... I don't know, on some newspapers where you're searching, I need a CEO. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you will find the right guy. And um, Sam um, came up here to uh, to Hausen. He bought, you bought a Chefsy. Yeah. A Chefsy I mean, time. I, I mean, actually, I could probably jump in here because yeah. it was, it was yeah. Jacob. Yeah, Jacob I, brought us So together. I had met the other, let's say the person, one of, Mar- of Marcus's best friend uh-huh. who was Marcus's best friend and supporter through YT development has been more of, let's say, a, 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 a passive partner. Um, and I knew Jacob from my time at Amazon. He came, he is somebody, when you asked Marcus before about what made him think that he could take this, Jacob's number one skill is getting people to take that step to found a company. He's a He is a inspirational figure and that's right now he, he runs an incubator okay. getting people to try and found companies. And yeah. he set a goal of th- founding a thousand companies uh, in the next 10 years. So he is a, I, I met him as part of the Amazon. He wanted to meet Jeff Bezos and he ended up meeting me. Like that's as high as he got <laughs> within Amazon, but that's, you know, he's setting his goal high. And then we met and I was totally captivated by him. He's a really engaging personality. He has a really um, fascinating story, uh-huh. uh, personal story. Um, and he knew uh, somehow it came out. We were talking about biking at some point during the, we were, we were talking about his, his, one of his companies, which was a, another fitness company. Um, and I, somehow it came up with, with mountain biking. He's like, oh yeah, I'm also, um, you know, involved in YT. And, and then I knew that. And we just kept on chatting with each other over the, uh, that was 2016, 2019. I was like, I really wanted to get back into biking. And I was riding my old Scott Genius 26 inch, and it was like, man, this thing is like, I can't get spare parts for it anymore. Like, I should have, I just get a better bike. And then I wrote Jacob because he had he had forwarded me the Jeffsy video with Christopher Walken, like in 2018. He forwarded it to me on WhatsApp, and we were chatted then a bit. And then I responded to that chat, hoping, and to be honest, I was hoping to get a deal on the bike <laughs> and be like, oh, it's funny, I'm actually thinking about buying this bike now. Uh, and and I didn't want to just tell him that. I was like, I have to. 
that's that's a bit too forward. So I told him like, yeah, and I'm thinking about what I'm going to do after Amazon because it's kind of my time here is uh, I feel like I want to do something different, not anticipating, not looking for a job. I was yeah, looking yeah. for a bike. I was looking yeah. for a deal on a bike. Uh, and then Jacob rode back to me like within 30, 30 seconds or something. He's like, Sam, what bike and size do you want? I'm taking care of it. Uh, uh, and second, you're going to come and work for, you're going to come and work with me. <laughs> and he then invited me, he arranged the bike. And then he, I went and spent a whole day with him. He's from Essen, which is uh, part Western Germany. Mm -hmm. And I went and met all the CEOs of the companies that he is supporting, uh, they, they, all of his founders. Uh, and then I um, also did a day with YT because he really was like, I want you to come and work in my orbit someplace. Yeah. Um, I really want to work together with you. Um, so I got that first access to Marcus then uh, and the, the team at YT at the time. And then it took another year from that first meeting um, where I think Marcus also was thinking a bit more about how, how does he want to structure it? Because we had talked about, I was like, you know, if you ever have an opportunity for me to jump in the board, like that'd be interesting. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about CEO because Marcus is a CEO uh, and I'm not a bike guy. I'm not a bike industry guy. I like biking. Um, and then, yeah, after a year, um, Jakob came back to me actually and was like, you know, Marcus and I have been talking about, we think we need a CEO and we think it should be you. And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, and then Marcus and I spent three or four months. Uh, every two weeks, we'd meet up in Munich or, or so that's two hours away from here, or I'd come up here and we would talk through what does it mean? What does it mean being yeah. CEO of a company? And does this mean Marcus is checking out? And, or does this mean, is Marcus even going to be, is it going to be possible for Marcus to hand over the reins for you to make decisions? Am I just going to be the CEO on paper, but he's doing making all decisions? And we spent three months um, working through all the details about what does it mean? How do we divide up the role? Um, uh, what's his way of working? How are we going to solve conflicts? Um, what challenges does he think the company has? Um, and it wasn't at all about financials or anything. It was really about way of working because I was like, I yeah. was really captivated about, okay, direct to consumer, which is I had bike industry, which is like not only really fun because it's something I'm passionate about, but it's also a good industry to be in, you know, growing yeah. and a great brand with great products. Um, and yeah, we, during that period, I think Marcus and I really has kind of formed this foundation of trust, um, that we, you know, we felt, okay, he's he's, you know, he's telling me exactly what's up. What are the challenges? I'm, I feel like I can approach him with topics I would have, and I know that he'll come to me if he's not happy with the direction I'm taking things. Uh, and then, yeah, and then I, then I, I jumped in, uh, and yeah, so that, that, I mean, it is, it was also something I didn't look for. I was not out looking for CEO jobs at bike companies. Yeah. Uh, it fell into my lap through a network. I mean, it's a typical networking thing. Uh, and certainly Jakob being like a really charismatic, um, guy pulling strings behind the scenes, uh, the puppet but, master. Yeah. The puppet master. But he, that's, that's what is, that's what he, his that's him right that, that yeah, that's what he's doing he's a connector yeah yeah interesting so marcus did you know what you knew you obviously you kind of wanted to move away from that ceo position did you know before the conversation started with sam did you know what your you wanted your role to be and how you wanted to shape it or did that evolve out of that three months yeah, kind of basically i already knew uh, in which direction i want to go and um i want to yeah lead the company to so i wanted to step away from operational business more mm -hmm. or less and taking more care about the strategic part so about um, developing um, the brand developing the product identity doing 
those things what um, yeah support those things what made YT big in the back in the days yeah and this is also my strength and um, now when I see with, with a bit more free time around and not dealing with all the I would say the daily problems um, how how my mind is now free and opens up and I see way more opportunities and chances and this is a I think for YT for YT a huge benefit yeah so your chief visionary officer is chief that right visionary officer yeah is called how would you describe what that entails like i guess you've gone through some of it there like strategic stuff but you're in you're in the detail a lot i think on aesthetic and brand and graphics yeah, product, and product portfolio also which markets um all the touch points we have to our um, customers it's not about just um how our logo should look like or what graphics do we uh, on a bike so how should we um appear uh, online uh, how uh, should the customer service um uh, handle stuff so I have an overview about everything, and uh -huh. now uh, with this um, helicopter perspective, I have now I I see things way different, and um, also I see things what's not in my part anymore. But this is something what I discuss with um, Sam, for example. We sit down every two weeks um, for dinner most of the time and talk about everything. Uh -huh. And so I hope that my experience, what I have from the last twelve years uh, being the CEO, can help him to make decisions or the right decisions yeah and have you missed any of that operational stuff no <laughs> <laughs> i thought that might be the answer you don't you, you don't miss this the spreadsheets and the, quite quick though. yeah yeah and you picked a good time as well right the logistics of running a bike company in the last few years has probably been more tricky yeah. than it's ever been absolutely yeah. the last two years were quite horrible with all the supply chain issues and all stuff so yeah so when did you officially join sam november of 2020 okay just in time. It was, well, it was already, it was just in the period where the lead time started exploding. Yeah. So like the first, the initial lockdown, a lot of companies were more hesitant on placing orders, like for the first month or two. Yeah. And then people started buying bikes like crazy. Uh, and then they all of a sudden it's flipped over to then buying a lot more. And then towards the fall, you saw lead times then really start creeping or not. Yeah. Creeping up. It was like every, every Every month that passed, lead times were, I don't know, maybe two months increase in lead times every yeah. month. And uh, freight costs going up and up and yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, freight, freight, yes, although freight costs at the end of the day have a very small impact on the total price of a bicycle. Mm -hmm. um, certainly with inflation, that's a different topic with uh, buying raw materials. The freight cost is not a, um, it, it is more expensive, but it's it's a, I don't know, a rounding error, error, error compared to a lot of the other things that uh -huh. are going up, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was uh, YT also at that time was operating as a direct-to-consumer brand. A huge advantage that we have is that we can place orders theoretically very late and really see what what's what are people buying right now. I mean, are they? I mean, if if we were to translate it today, are people buying twenty niners or are they going mullet? Yeah, like if they're you know mullet with us right now is really exploding. Uh, it would be great to just say like, well, let's. You know, let's instead of having 29ers, let's get mullet bikes. Let's get more mullet bikes for in three months. Mm -hmm. And that would have, well, maybe not three months because you have to order the frames a bit longer than that. <laughs> but let's say six to nine months out, yeah. we could place orders and it was okay. Okay. Whereas our, 
a lot of the brick and mortar stores that rely on distributor orders. I know the the bike stores have to place the orders with the distributors, and then the, it trickles up, and then it all builds bottom up, and it takes two years, yeah, okay, uh, time for those things. And we can be more nimble and say, well, let's see what's working, yeah. and buy that. And that's how we did offer order in the past, and then all of a sudden we went from three monthly times on components and six to nine monthly times on frames, which yeah. is kind of pre, to all of a sudden it's like, I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, over a period of six months, it went up to two years. We didn't even have a plan that was two years out. Like we were ordering <laughs> one year out at the most. Yeah. And then to switch over to what's well, it's like, I mean, most companies would have said, okay, well, let's just pull out our five-year plan and just order from that. It was like, well, we don't have a five-year plan. That's, you know, we've never had to do that. Uh, and that... You know, we had to move from having a plan that was one year out to then two years out, and then now we have a five-year plan. We do uh -huh. have that now. That was one of the things that that, yeah. that, that we had to do, um, and that's helped the the business. But trying to figure all that out, and you know, we placed two years worth of bike orders within a two or three month period. Yeah. Um. And and that was something that you know was a lot of pressure on the team to make the right decisions, and it was a new way of working and. You know, and nobody knew what was going on, and were these bikes going to come on time or not? And uh, and we're still, we're it's it's gotten a lot better, but we're still stuck. You know, the bikes we have now, are, the bikes that we're getting today, are bikes that we wanted, that we thought we were going to get last early in the spring. So mm -hmm. they're six months later than we we expected them to come. So there's still large delays. Yeah. Um. And that's and you know th those bikes. You know, you're stuck with what you have now, uh, and so you hope that you made the right <laughs> orders a year and a half ago. It's not, um, not an easy welcome to the bike industry, is it? Really? No, but then on the, I mean, I don't want to cry a river because the on the other side, any bike you got in the last two years would have told. Yeah. Even if you know mullet was doing well, I mean, during the peak of Corona, people just needed a bike and were willing to, you know, they they were not Whatever they're not being there, picky, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and and so. In some ways, and maybe that's even a penalty, you didn't have to do a good job buying mm -hmm. as long as you got bicycles, you would sell them. Yeah. And I think that was probably the true across any brand. You know, a lot of brands, I think, got a, a, another lifeline. Um, they didn't have to have great bikes because as long as you had a bike, you were okay. Um, uh, you know, and that's something, you know, YT places a lot of focus around great components, great spec. And so we wanted to be careful about what we ordered, mm -hmm. um, but we were not used to ordering that far in advance. So that, yeah. that's been a big change. And that's something we, you know, it's a lot of growing pains and that, that hit me like the first <laughs> month or two. And, and, you know, at the beginning, I couldn't make those kind of decisions. I had to rely on the team to make the decisions and just like, tell me why you're doing it. And I'm not going to challenge it. Yeah, uh, yeah. You just have to make sure it's getting done. No, that's fair. Tell us a bit about, I guess, the brief that you were given when you came in from Marcus and the leadership team and then how you spent that first 90 days because that's yeah. like a crucial period when you're settling into a big role, right? Yeah. Working out, you know, how it all functions, what the culture is. Yeah, so the first, I mean, the first 90 days for me, it was I'd never worked in the bike industry. I knew that, I, I mean, I came in, people knew my background, uh, you know, I'm that I like biking, so I'm not a, I'm not a non-biker, uh, but not having worked in the bike industry and coming from Amazon, you know, totally different situation with, uh, you know, huge corporate background. And, and granted, when you shop on Amazon, you're all about getting in and out quickly, you know, price selection, availability. A lot of the things that customers value on Amazon is not what you do when bike industry, you know, like if you're buying a bike, 
you're not getting in and out in 30 seconds. Yeah. Uh, you're coming multiple times and doing lots of research and you're emotionally connected to the product that you're purchasing. And yeah. most Amazon stuff is, uh, you know, just get it to me and functional. Um, so I, I came in with a very open eyes saying, okay, I'm going to, I mean, you know, following what you should be doing when you start a job, listening to people. Uh, you know, I did, I interviewed about half the people in the company, uh, an hour each. What was each. the scale of the company at that point? Around 100, 120. Okay. Uh, when I started, we're at 200 now. Yeah. Uh, so I, I talked to over 50 people um, in all the locales. Um, I tried to go across the board, across all the organizations, and then I would, I, I had questions prepared, and I asked the same people. I asked people, every single person, the same set of questions. Yeah. And then took notes. Uh, and then after three months, I sat down with the leadership team here, and I gave a feedback. I said, this is what I heard. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the kinds of action items that I would propose doing to address short-term some of the issues that we are facing. Uh, and then actually did a, a meeting with every single employee. I did an all-hands meeting where we actually – I walked through everything that I had learned. Um, I mean, this was not like, well, one person complained about that thing. That doesn't make the list. <laughs> but when you have 10 people complaining about the same thing, yeah, it's an issue then. you bring yeah. it up. And, then you, and, and I try to be very transparent, and I think that's something that, that – Marcus and I have tried to do here is be very honest, as honest as we can be with the employees about what challenges we're facing and not yeah. sugarcoat like, you know, oh, there is no supply chain issue. Like, no, this is going to be hard and this is going to be frustrating for customers because they're not going to be able to get bikes. Yeah. Um, and we're going to have, we have a lot of hard work ahead of us and it's not fun work. I mean, supply chain, firefighting, <laughs> there is nobody in that field in the bike industry who's had a good time in the last two years. You know, no. massive stress. You're the bear of bad news. There is no good news. Like the, the best you can hope for is that there's no delays. You're not getting anything faster. Uh, and that I think also keeping people's motivation up and, and willing to put in, you know, the hours and the stress and, you know, it's a lot of phone calling and juggling and reworking. And, you know, that's one of the things bike industry is not, it's not a digitized industry. You yeah. know, everything's happening with Excel spreadsheets and PDFs and emails it's not computers talking to each other. Um, so there's people behind it that you know occasionally make mistakes mm-hmm. or things get lost or oh, you use the wrong version of that spreadsheet. Oh man, that's bad because now <laughs> we lost 500 bikes. Um, that that has been a very stressful period for that team. I mean, on the yeah. other hand, the marketing team had they were chilled because everything's selling. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a wave. And, you know, and and those are things. I mean, Marcus talked about before. How do we work together? Like Marcus and I sit down, and you know, Marcus. I mean, everybody told me the bike industry has never had anything like this because I was sitting here like pulling my hair out, like, oh my God, <laughs> we don't have EDI set up that, the, that we can't, our computers can't talk to our, our suppliers' computers. Like, that's what I was used to from Amazon. Like, why don't we just do it? And like, well, nobody does it. And like, well, okay, I guess we have work to do. <laughs> but, you know, Marcus also said, you know, the, the bike industry goes through lots of cycles and there's periods of, you know, overstocks and, and then you are, you know, you you have cash issues, and then it dips into other kinds of challenges, and then you have to manage from. I mean, I wouldn't say you're managing from crisis to crisis. We probably we try to get out of that, but um, uh, you know, he he was able to provide a lot of context for how those things worked in the past. Yeah. Um, and circle back to okay, well, what are we actually going to do about trying to minimize, you know, maximize the number of bikes, 
make sure that the employees are, are still on board with the direction we're trying to go and give some stability to that situation. And then also with commu- communicating with customers was a big topic too, because yeah. there were so many frustrated customers at that period, you know, yeah. just like, just get me a bike or why isn't my bike coming? You told me it was coming in two months and yeah. now it's like delayed by, you don't even know how long, you can't even tell me how long it's going to be delayed, which is a really, a really difficult conversation to have with a customer and like, you know, you feel for them. Yeah, I want to talk about the customer side. We'll do that in just a sec. I'm interested to know what the response was like internally to you joining because mm. the bike industry is like, as everyone knows that's worked in it, it's, an, it's a really nice place to work. Um, there's a lot of passion and a lot of people that are super into what they do. You know, you get to sort of go and ride a bike sometimes and say that it's work, which is pretty cool. Um, and to have someone coming in, I guess, that has the Amazon thing attached to them, right? I can imagine that being quite scary, quite intimidating. It's always, you know, worrying when someone, when the leadership of a business yeah. changes when you're comfortable within that business. What was the response like to you, to you joining? Because clearly, you, you know, you've got a riding background. So there's a level of comfort there that you kind of, at least you get the sport. Yep. But the background is super different. Yeah. I, I, to be honest, it was it was a bit easy because I think, or easy, one of the positives was were when I did my interviews with people and one of the main feedbacks was people were like, we're so happy that you're here. Okay. <laughs> to, because we need to improve, you know, they saw a lot of, you know, cross-functional communication as the organization grew. I mean, Marcus grew the company from, you know, it started off with him and then he had, you know, five and then 10 and then 20, 30 people all sitting in the same room where you overlook how simple communication is when everyone's in the same room, everyone's having lunch together and you're going out having a beer after dinner yeah. and product development talks to marketing because they're right next to each other. Uh-huh. If you have a larger company and now we have two buildings, they're right next door to each other, but you know, spread over multiple floors and people don't see each other naturally. And yeah. with Corona, even more so, right? You're only seeing each other when you have a meeting uh, and you lose out on a lot of those topics. And, and a lot of the employees... You know, the, the Marcus is loved internally for all the things he's done, but I think people also recognize, and he admits it to himself, that's not his his core competence. Um, uh, let's say bringing. I have to be careful here. <laughs> um, you know that when you the, the areas of particularly making complex business decisions and data driven decisions. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, Marcus isn't passionate about doing that stuff that I love to do. Like, I'm not good about building brands or looking at the silhouette of a, of a bike and saying, oh, we need to shave off a couple of millimeters here. That's Marcus. Uh, I'm not looking at colors, um, but I certainly get excited about what kind of dashboards should we build to manage this business and how do we turn these dashboards into actual actual insights? That's what I do all day long. Yeah. And I get excited about that. Um, so I can stick to the things I'm excited about. And I think the company really had needed that at that point. Um, and so when I came in, it was easy because people were waiting, you know, like, Sam, you need to get started and we need to, you know, let's get, you tell us what to do and we're on it. Um, That's and, cool. That you had that energy from the group ready, like ready yeah. to go. And so it wasn't any, like I had to, I mean, certainly there were, people shook their heads sometimes like, well, that's not how it happens in the bike industry. So there was a lot of education involved for me. Like, okay, you just can't expect us to do that. Yeah. yeah. And there were a lot of things where, you know, I raised topics and people were like, oh yeah, that's a really good idea. We should do it. Oh, and then they could go do it, but they hadn't even thought of the idea before because it was never 
on the radar. Mm. I don't know. They just hadn't been exposed to it. You know, YT has a lot of lifetime, you know, people who've been around since 2012, and that's the only company they've ever been at. Or maybe they've switched from another bike company and just haven't been exposed to a lot of the things that the way that companies have solved things in other industries, yeah. uh, like best practices that you can, that are pretty easy to bring over uh, and, and adapt, obviously. But um, uh, so there was a lot of interest in having new and let's say more professional approaches brought to the company. Yeah. So that 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 was good. I mean, that made my job a lot easier because people were you know welcoming me with open arms. Yeah, receptive audience. Yeah. yeah. So have you had to bring in new skill sets then, like some yeah. of this more like process focused stuff, yeah. or and building some of these systems that ultimately yeah. help. But there's a lot of work to get them in place, and there's often some disruption involved with that as well, right? Yeah, and there's also a lot of uh, walking fine lines between if you bring in too many outside voices, you lose connection to the, let's say the core of biking and, and access to customers. Yeah. So the ideal profile, I mean, you could say in some ways, I, I, I filled the ideal profile, I think that Marcus was looking for in, I am a biker who brings a professional background, uh-huh. operational excellence background, who likes to bike. Um, and that's kind of the, if I could go out and choose what kind of people I would want to bring in from outside the industry, it would be people who have a strong connection to biking. That's mm-hmm. like the ideal. And there's a lot of those people, are, you know, everybody who's buying bikes, most people don't work in the bike industry. Um, and if, you know, programmers ride bikes and and marketing people ride bikes. And, and I mean, obviously like, you know, bike workshop people, that's kind of the standard, but, you know, accountants ride bikes and uh, finding people who can do that and have that passion for the brand is the ideal situation. Yeah. Uh, so I tried to find people who were like that because I did quite a lot of hiring in the first couple of months to building up a stronger leadership team mm-hmm. that could help make more of these decisions. Cause like, you know, one person doesn't have time to make all the decisions. Um, so we focused on that and finding the balance then between external bike industry people, but complementing them with people who under, do understand the bike industry yeah, yeah. and fi- building kinds of teams, groups, where you have both backgrounds because you can't do it with all bike industry people because then it'll be unstructured and it'll be a passion project, but mm-hmm. it probably won't hit the timeline. <laughs> uh, and you can't do it with all external people because the way they talk and the way they communicate and the partners you need, you know, between the press, uh, assembly uh, factories, all the, all the you know, the component manufacturers, the frame uh, manufacturers, those are all like hardcore bike people. Uh, if you try to go and talk to them with people who don't understand the bike industry, it's mm-hmm. kind of shaking your, their head and like, oh, what are these guys doing? Um, <laughs> so that was certainly something I tried to do. And, and it goes a bit of pendulum, like, at times we hire a bit more non-industry and then yeah. like, oh man, we got to hire some more bike people. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so trying to walk that fine line of bringing in best practices and bringing in people who can bring more structure and, and new ways of doing things to the bike industry mm-hmm. and having the bike industry people buy into that. Uh, yeah, because that's yeah. important too. They're like, oh wow, that actually does work a lot better and we're excited that we're doing this and just show me how to do it, I'm on board. Yeah. Um, and it, that has worked well. We haven't had it. Um, big attrition at all from from our employees. Uh-huh. You know, people. It's we've had a ton of changes in the company, uh, and I'm really happy that people have, uh, you know, were excited about the changes and have stuck with it. Yeah, cool. And, and in any company, right, culture is really important because if you want to work somewhere, you you know, you kind of need to buy into that, and it needs to feel like welcoming and a place where you're comfortable. And it feels like that's something that you focused on definitely in the team that you'd built up, Marcus. Did you have concerns 
over you know the culture shifting or things changing when you're bringing in people with like external points of view non-industry stuff and how have you guys between you managed that you talked about i guess the balance of like employing bike industry and non-bike industry and how you how you shift that but how has it been maintaining the culture is there certain like bits of work that you've done to keep yt feeling like yt internally as well as externally yeah absolutely because there's always the danger if uh, something like um the med the, the senior management is shifting, for example, or so with Sam. Even he's an he's an avid mountain biker, but with the completely different background of a corporate uh, um, business, is like okay, the brand what we set up with YT is all about culture and uh, and about passion and about feeling, and this is something what I try always to, yeah, to to yeah, save or take care about that it's not going into a different direction and when the company is growing and you get more and more people in, it's way harder to keep the culture and the passion and everything in the right um, direction because everybody has a different point of view on the brand and yeah. on the culture. Yeah. So, and like Sam mentioned before, when you have 20, 30, even 50 people, it's quite easy because you see everybody every day and you are the lead figure and you are there and... Yeah, but now um, when you look, we have uh, in the UK a subsidiary in the US and yeah. in Taiwan, uh -huh. and these are distances, and this is super hard to um, keep the culture there. So, I, uh, my main focus in the beginning when same came in was to 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 write down everything, to describe okay. everything, yeah. and make it um, digestible for for everybody to get a clue. It's not about a rule book. It's more or less when when you write uh, when you read our our brand manual. Um, that doesn't say what you have to do or uh -huh. shouldn't do. It's more or less like, okay, when you understand it, you know how to deal in your daily business or with uh, other employees, with the customers, etc. Yeah, This was a main thing. And I thought, okay, it should be easy done in four to six weeks. <laughs> uh, it took nearly a year to, really? to nail it down. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Was that a solo project? Did you have help? Like I, I had help, of, of course. Um, I, I set up a, uh, a special department here. It's called uh, BBI, Brand uh -huh. and Product Identity. Yeah. And um, with um, a few guys who are already at the company since seven, eight, nine years mm -hmm. and um, who, who really know about the brand and the product uh, identity. So um, sit together with them, talked a lot wrote everything down rewrote the things and yeah it's it's never ready i would say it's a living document yeah. um so we we work on that every every few weeks every few months when we got new ideas or see maybe okay this could be interpreted a little bit different or mm -hmm. whatever so then we overwork it and yeah yeah and how do you feel that's working because the company's almost doubled from a headcount perspective mm -hmm. in the couple of years that you've been with the company sam that's very rapid uh, headcount growth there for yeah. any business. Do you are you happy with how the culture is panning out? Does it is that working that document? Uh, it's working better than I expected. Def okay. it's definitely not on on hundred percent now, and uh, we have to deal with some things and uh, also to think about not only rely on this brand manual. It's it's an online based brand uh -huh. manual, so everybody has access to. So we think about uh, doing events. Think about how how can we um, put our main messages into the um, yeah working environments in the company and so on. And um, yeah, events like the Christmas party, for example, these are the things where we try to bring everything to life. Uh -huh. 
and yeah do you get everyone together for the christmas party or well, obviously not in covid times but is that is that well, we realistic haven't a, we haven't had a christmas party this is going to be the first year hopefully that we have one since i've been here uh and we will bring the uk team over yeah yeah because they're um, but, super close right? uh, um, that's too i bring all the us and taiwan is too much yeah um so they have their own parties um but both marcus and i've been to we were just both in the us in the last couple of months um Taiwan still has actually COVID restrictions even getting in, so I yeah. haven't, haven't been to Taiwan yet. Um, and I would, I think Mark's talking about the brand manual. For me, it's also very similar to values. There's a lot of values within the brand manual. Uh -huh. It's not just about, it's more than than like a, that only the brand manager would look at yeah, it yeah. and it's nobody not, else. It's, it's not it's an external focused thing like defining yeah, but what the, a bike. And certainly there are, the only way you can make those things work is if you in if you bring it into all parts of the business from product development and marketing which where it makes sense because that's what he's focused on yeah, yeah. but things like recruiting we need to you know the way we are about having good times and like having a beer after work you know going out for a ride those are things that we can i mean i don't know if you test it but that's one thing you you, you want to incorporate it in the interview process is somebody that you want to hang out with yeah yeah um if you have so incorporating into recruiting processes, incorporating it into annual feedbacks with employees, um, bringing it to life in the form of anecdotes. So Marcus has it's a it's a pretty theoretical brand book, high level, which is on purpose. But then how do you bring it to light? So saying, well, let's bring somebody from product development and have them talk about how they use the brand book to help inspire them on the latest bike design okay. so that people get, ah, okay, so you can do that with the brand book. Uh, now I understand more, you know, having, having a guest speaker to talk about what does it mean um, to, because I, I mean, live uncaged is kind of, you know, the, the, the word that we use. Yeah. Um, what does it mean to live uncaged or, you know, and I think one thing that I know Marcus and I, we've talked about a lot, there's this perception, I think among employees that living uncaged comes from Marcus, uh -huh. and Marcus is the one who's living uncaged, and he will tell us how to live uncaged. And Marcus wants every employee to be un live uncaged, and that he should be the one telling us we're living too uncaged, and maybe we need to, <laughs> to tone down a little bit. And I think that's something that we haven't done a good job encouraging the employees to say, hey, take risks. And I mean, don't take unnecessary risks, maybe but come up with a couple of ideas that were like totally risk-taking or totally crazy yeah. and come to Marcus and then Marcus can probably, you know, maybe he'll think two or three are, are no good, but maybe, and maybe we'll tweak some of those, but that it's not the expectation that Marcus and his team are the ones who are the only ones coming up with crazy ideas on, on campaign videos mm -hmm. um, or on different ways to design a bike. Um, but that it's every employee that's, that's part of being at YT is that, that you should not, allow you know, you shouldn't be locked into you know you shouldn't be following orders in some ways you know you should be feeling free to break through it and to challenge and i mean it's not that i mean living uncaged in accounting is a bit hard <laughs> um but you should be feel free to challenge the conventional wisdom of what's going on if you see a way to do it better yeah uh and and i think that's an area that certainly the company can continue to grow so i mean there's 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 stuff to do everywhere yeah um, but we're on the right path Cool. Where the live uncaged phrase is really powerful. When did that become part of YT and where like where did that come from? I'm interested in the background on it. Yeah, basically I I carry it in me since since my I would say since I was 13, 14 years old when I decided to do things um different and really always try to live my my dream and 
taking risks. Um, when we brought it uh, officially to life uh, at YT, it was in 2018 because there we made a kind of a brand relaunch. Mm -hmm. So we came up with a new logo and um, the old slogan was good times. Yeah, yeah. It was all about good times. But then we said, okay, a lot of others also used the phrase uh, good times. So we said, okay, we do the thing what's really in us and this is living on cage, doing things different, not because of the difference, mm -hmm. just because that we want to do it Yeah, and are not afraid to doing things different. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice yeah. uh, energy, I guess, yeah. to give people. It's a permission, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's like, because um, a lot of people ask me, uh, yeah, can I ride a YT bike still? Because I'm a bit older. Okay. <laughs> so it, YT or young talent has nothing to do with age. Uh -huh. Because living uncaged means that you can also, when you are 50, 60 or older, you can every day discover a new young talent inside yourself and uh, give it a chance to, yeah give it a try let it out of the cage yes exactly oh yeah um i want to talk about something that's maybe a little less glamorous sam and it was like i think the the first big thing that you had to get stuck into and it probably wasn't something that could wait 90 days for you to go and ask some questions and that's the customer service side of it it's tricky for uh, any growing business right there's always challenges with that especially when you're direct to consumer because you don't have the same touch points um but there's definitely a more customer-centric focus within YT over the last couple of years. Uh, where where was it at and how have you moved it along that journey? Because I think we were talking earlier about the Trustpilot score had gone from 2 point something to 4.7 or something, yeah. which is, is a massive shift. Yeah, it has been. Um, so when I started in November 2020, in October... YT had launched or switched over to SAP as our ERP program. So the can you explain the, those two? Uh, yeah, so SAP TLAs is for a <laughs> it's a computer software program that helps manage all of your supply chain and all of your accounting. So it's a it keeps track of all the numbers mm -hmm. in a company. And they had made the switch, um, and we had. A, for various reasons, we had our fiscal year start in October, and so it's easy to make the switch when you switch from fiscal year to fiscal year for reporting because then you have all the old information in the old system and all the new information in the new one. And so they had had a bit of a, a hard deadline on that. And while they got a lot of the stuff right, one thing that they didn't get to for launch was hooking up the customer care team to SAP. And SAP is where all the order information is and you know payment information, among other things. So, you know, October 1st rolled around and November 1st I came. Customer care, all of a sudden, their screens went blank. Actually, well, blank. They didn't have their old tools, which they used to access information around, you know, customer calls up and says, where's my bike? Um, they couldn't access it anymore. Uh -huh. So this was also a period in, um, in uh, Corona where we had a lot, a lot of orders and a lot of things not working well uh, on top of SA, the SAP, the ERP mm -hmm. um, launch. Um, and that led to lots more calls than we had normally and lots more calls that couldn't be answered by customer care. And to answer any questions, they had to reach out to the finance team who had access to SAP <laughs> to find the answer in their system and then write back. And that you can't do that on the phone. So you have to like, okay, what's your problem? I'll write it down. I'll create a ticket or write an email and then however long they need to get back. And there's a thousand other requests coming in too. Yeah. So everything came to a standstill. And we had a really, like when I started in November, unfortunately, we had a six-week waiting period for emails to get back to customers. Customers were writing us about anything. It took us six weeks to get back. And I, I was 
it was for me coming from my background where customer care is like, you know, it's so important. Uh, it was really, that was really painful to see. Uh, and I know, you know, people in the company felt so bad because, you know, they're talking to customers who were totally frustrated and they just couldn't help them. And it took about, so that was the first area that I really dug into, um, initially staffing up a lot. So hiring a bunch more people who just answered phones even, yeah, and yeah. even if they couldn't give an answer, at least saying like, Hey, we got your, we know you have a problem. I'm writing it down and we'll get back to you. Uh, and then as quickly as possible, adding, getting those systems in place that they could actually look at that information themselves. And that happened around January, February. Uh, they, they got access back to the data again. Um, and, but it's taken, it took us a year probably to dig out of that hole of, of, you know, people saying like, well, you can't reach us. You know, I tried calling YT and I just can't get through. I wait for an hour on the phone and nobody's answering. Um, and that was a sobering experience and one that I knew, you know, you, that's not something that you recover from quickly. Even if, even if you switch over to doing great customer service, um, it sticks with you for a long time. Mm. Um, and, and I'm, you know, that the, it wasn't because of lack of energy or doing the right things from the team. Um, it was, you know, misses that happened uh, at, at different areas. Um, but we pulled together and, you know, we didn't have any customer care metrics, for example. We had no KPIs that were being reported regularly. Well, what is the K backlog? Okay. How KPI. long are people waiting? KPI, key performance indicator. So the data, the data that you use to measure how effective you are. And customer care is something that, Every almost every company has some kind of customer care, and it's very standardized metrics. Like, how long does it take when you call up on the phone? How long do people wait until they get an answer? Is your if you call up, what percentage of times can you solve the customer's query the first time they contact you? How long is an open case open before it's solved? Um, so there's very I mean, that's just a few of the of the things you can look at in customer care, but it's very standardized and it's not bike specific. It's any industry has mm -hmm. that stuff. And so we, we and, and nobody could even, we could dig up those numbers, but it was a manual process uh -huh. when I started. And I said, no, I want these published automatically. I want to look every single week what's going on. Um, and, you know, the customer care team, they were not fighting back at all. They loved it. You know, they finally, uh, they felt like they were being heard. Uh, and we ramped that up pretty quickly. And I, that's something we did hire two people. We hired a, a head of customer care from outside the bike industry and head of operations from outside the bike industry who knew how to do that stuff. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I was able to hand that over to them and they built up all this, all those systems to, with which we can do it. And so that was, we had it under control again by the spring of 2021. Uh, and since then the reviews are a lot better, but you're still, you know, I know there are a lot of people who, who we didn't serve well during that let's say six month period. Uh, and certainly they were right, every right to be upset about the, the treatment they got then. Um, and, you know, right now we're doing our best to prove that we're able to do it differently that we set up things differently. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's something that I, you know, Marcus did a fantastic job building a brand and product powerhouse. Uh, and I see this as we need to have a similar, we need to power, be a powerhouse also on service uh, if we want to be successful long-term. Yeah, especially when you're selling in the remote way Correct. that you do, right? Yeah. You can't walk into a shop and talk to someone about it, which is, yeah. can be pretty challenging because it's yeah. what we're all used to, I guess. So yeah. that's uh, – and, and to be honest, the bike industry is either not known if, – if I looked at bike industry compared to other industries, customer care, customer service is not something that the bike industry excels in. Yeah. So the if I look at it from an outside perspective, the bar is pretty low. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's easy to actually be pretty good in the bike industry. 
even though I would still say that's way below what many other companies are able to perform at. Uh, and a lot of those are, are linked to lack of digitization within the bike industry. But there's there's so much more potential to treat customers, to treat riders better, both from YT but also across the entire industry. You know, these are all while the professionalization of YT, if you will, could be sound scary. Uh-huh. The reality is if you if you have less problems, if your problem can be solved remotely via self-service, if you have no waiting times, those are all positive things for consumers, for bike industry people. Yeah, yeah. And they should I would I would hope that people you know, that if we raise the bar, that encourages other people to raise the bar in customer yeah, care. Yeah. Uh, and that flows across the entire industry. And those are things that everyone benefits Become, from. Yeah, it becomes a standardized yeah. practice kind of thing. And I guess the mills have helped, right? Because you send, rather than having to send your bike back to Germany if you're not based in the EU, you can send to local, more local you could mills. Send, you, could, and, you could bring it by too. Yeah. Um, so that's, I mean, that's not covering the large majority of bicycles. That's one option. Yeah. I would also add though, we do like in the mill in the UK, we have employees who work customer care who mm-hmm. sit upstairs who are local. Yeah. And in the US we have local customer care people, you know, in the, using the language of the people, <laughs> the customers who we have. Uh, you know, we have a French language customer care. We have Italian language customer care. We have British English and American English. Um, um, you know, those things matter. And that's, you know, Mark is talking about how do we talk to customers. That's one of the things. Like we want to have, it's all in-house people yeah. who do it. Almost all of them are bikers. Uh, and, you know, we place a high value on, on you know, our customers, we try to treat as family mm-hmm. uh, and be, you know, you know, you. We're not being formal in those discussions. We're being laid back because that's how we are, uh, and we think that's how our customers want to be. I mean, obviously, if they have issues, you know, you, you have to. It's it's not always easy, right? Yeah, Customer yeah. care is it can be pretty stressful when people are calling because they, you know, and if they've had a bad experience and it's not their fault, then you can totally empathize with them. Um, uh, but there's that's where that's our customer contact is is customer care right that's what we're talking we're not talking to them in the bike shops we're talking to them on the phone yeah and that customer uh, care is not when we say that i guess we're not just talking about people that have problems right this is yeah, from the moment sales, you come support, to the website yeah. you know decide to make a purchase it's right. the whole thing yeah and actually and i would say in some ways if you're doing a great job they shouldn't have to call customer care right that that yeah. that if somebody wants to call and ask, like, should I get a mullet or a 29, that's an easy call to do. Like, that's something everybody here would love to have that call because that's yeah. fun. That's, you know, supporting a customer, finding the right product. Uh, the harder ones are like, you know, my bike got lost or, you know, I just, you know, I crashed my bike. My, che- my seat stays broken. I'm not sure if it's warranty or not. And then they're really scared that they're going to have to cover, you know, potentially have to buy a new bike or are they going to get crash yeah. replacement from us? You know, those are tough, more difficult conversations where you have, and it's a lot of technical stuff and they have to send in their bike and we have to look at it. And, um, you know, that's another one of the improvements that we started doing based on actually the U S it started this, if, if customers have problems, like a chain stay broke in the past, we used to bring in the, ask for the customer to send the bike here, we would fix it and send it back. And that, uh-huh. you know, that's packing up the bike, that's shipping it. You have to wait for three weeks, you know, if you're lucky to get the bike back. 
Uh, and in the U.S., they started just sending the part. Ask the customer, are you? Uh, okay. You can send it in, but if you feel comfortable, we'll send you a part and yeah. you fix it yourself. And they uh, okay. and a lot of remarkably number a high number of customers say, just send it to me and I'll do it myself. Yeah. And you know we can give them you know if they want to either do it themselves or if they want to go to the bike shop, then we'll give them you know say up to this amount. We'll we'll cover. We'll yeah. reimburse you for it. And then that gets them on their bike way faster, and it's less work for us. And it's you know we don't have to ship bikes back and forth across yeah, the definitely. continent. Yeah, because you hear stories of. of people with bikes from some brands where they've literally like it's broken at the start of the summer and it's yeah. like november before it, they're back that's on right. it you know and they've yeah, missed and that whole summer right that's which is horrific. Told, you, know, you have so much empathy for customers who have to go through that you know yeah. it's just a horrible situation so anything we can do to minimize that we try to do i mean it's unfortunately sometimes it, you know it does happen unfortunately and and you feel for those customers but certainly when we identify those you know that's one thing we now look at average time to handle a case and then we look at the outliers what happened yeah what's the root cause for why that customer didn't get it and then we ah, okay we need to adjust our ordering of spare parts somehow and then we'll do that and make sure you know use those anecdotes to identify problems that you can then fix next time around and yeah, ideally not okay. have the have the same people repeating the same problem yeah. year after year. It's like, yeah. okay, it happened. Let's make sure we handle this customer fairly. Um, and then let's let's make sure we close that yeah. that that problem and that it doesn't impact somebody else. Yeah, continuous improvement kind mm -hmm. of a focus. How does it feel to you, Marcus, seeing these big changes, right? Because it's an organization that you've grown and been the head of for 12 years. And then Sam's here and straight away he's, you know, he's wading in and he's making some big changes, but it's pushing stuff in a good direction. Like, how, how does it feel for you to sit and see some of this stuff going on? Because it must be must feel quite strange. No, it isn't quite strange. It's exactly the opposite. It's that what I always expected and hoped for. Okay. And it um, feels really, really good. I'm sitting there and I can enjoy things way more than, uh -huh. than before. And um, it was a huge push it's, um, the last two years with um, hiring over 80 new employees. That's uh, that's that's a lot of stuff. And um, what sometimes is a little bit strange is when I come to the office and I see new faces because a lot of them came uh, during COVID to us. So um, okay. I didn't know them um, personally. And so I have the feeling every week <laughs> I um, discover somebody new and I'm asking well, what, are, um, what you are doing actually for YT and yeah, things yeah. like that. This is sometimes a bit strange, but also um, exciting. Yeah, it's cool. Is there like an onboarding process for new starters? Like, what does that look like at YT? We do have an onboarding process, yes. That's one of those things that's currently being improved. So we now anchor people around the all-start of the first of the month. Um, so this is, I'm speaking of Europe, so our headquarters. Um, they all start on the same day. They sit down together and get an introduction to how how we work, yeah. we talk about the brand manual. They get an email beforehand with a list of all the YouTube videos that they can watch to, you know, the brand videos and the, um, you know, some, what is downhill racing for the people who don't know anything uh -huh. about mountain bike. Some, some people don't know everything about mountain bike. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have, I would still say it's early days um, because we have a lot of opportunities I'd want to bring, you know, we've talked about, well, we want to bring in guest, guest speakers from the leadership team to go in and, and talk about what does it mean. Mm -hmm. Um and certainly giving all the – or giving even templates to managers to ensure that every employee – that people aren't falling through the cracks. Because I think yeah, in the past yeah. it was – you could get lucky and have a manager who totally took care of you and introduced you to everyone in the company and it was great. But you could also get unlucky and have a manager who didn't take – you know, you showed up the first day and they forgot you were even starting. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And there's no computer. 
Um, so a lot of this there. is also, you know, giving <laughs> giving support to our managers around, okay, here's a template and just who does a person need to meet in the first week? Like write down a list of all the people you think they should meet. What should they talk about? Yeah. What's that person's email address so they can find them? Here's a link to the phone tool and the organizational chart. Uh, here's all the brand videos. Um, uh, you know, doing a, a follow-up conversation after three months, you know, how, how things worked. Um, this is basic, let's say basic human resources work, mm-hmm. um, you know, building these, these support mechanisms. Uh, and yeah, that's, we've, we, there was nothing when we started and now yeah. there, there's something that there, there's a lot more coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It's cool to see that journey of like, like you say, practices, best practices from other industries being brought into the bike industry in this yeah, way. Yeah. And I mean, that's one where like, okay, a best practice is you have a template that you give a manager. Yeah. Well, what does that template look like? We can adapt that to, to YT. And, yeah, to and fit to, the value, the yes. DNA, the brand, the culture. Yeah, and it's not and it's not rocket science. Like you tell people, like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, there's nobody here who would say like, oh, we shouldn't do that. It's just okay. Well, somebody has to now sit down and make the template. And yeah, we uh, I I started doing them myself, and then I just gave it to HR and said, why don't you just you know publish that and we'll just give it to everyone or make you know make some adaptations. But yeah. um, those are things that. You know, people are super excited to get like, oh, that's how you can do it. Give me an example of what you mean. And uh-huh. then you show it to them and they're like, oh, oh yeah, that makes total sense. And then they're, then they have it. Then, then they're, they're with it. Cause you say like build an onboarding template and nobody's ever seen one before. Then you're creating it from scratch. It's really hard. But if you just get an example from, you know, I can just sit down and pound one out cause I've yeah. done a lot of them. Um, <laughs> And then that's someplace they can start with. And now, in the meanwhile, we've hired other people, like the the the, the man we hired, who runs people and culture. Um, he also comes. Or he came from Adidas, so he also has a corporate background and yeah. knows how to do all that kind of stuff too. So I don't have to do it myself. Happy uh, days. Come up with templates. He can do that himself. Oh, good. Let's um, let's switch tack a bit and come back across to the product side of things. From your perspective, Sam, how do you see the product portfolio at this stage, and how do you think about expanding it? Because you've got something pretty different coming up yep um so i I actually take a step back on that question well okay there's there's a couple different ways you can grow a company one is expanding product portfolio spreading out adding new products and selling new products to existing customers there's regional expansion so going into new countries um uh, let's say those are the the two that we would look at uh the reality I, i think a lot of people would be surprised how small YT is in terms of revenue and the total volume of bikes. Uh-huh. When we look at ourselves, the, the the share of bikes that we're selling, in in the, when you look at the the whole mountain bike industry, it's significantly under one percent of mountain okay. bikes sold in our. So looking from trail to downhill, yeah, are YT bikes. So if you cut it down further and say, well, let's only talk about premium mountain bikes, it goes up a little bit, but uh-huh. it, we're still not talking about. You know, we're not a it, it's a huge difference between what we're doing and some of the the market segment leaders. Yeah, there is all kinds of opportunity for us to grow significantly without adding any new products at all. Okay, so that's kind of where, where when when markets when I started, we had talked about this that the big opportunity for us is actually geographic expansion. Yeah, like we're really strong in Germany, and we're really strong in Southern California, uh, and. You know, you go to Florida and there's very few YTs. Uh-huh. You go to Spain and there's very few YTs or Italy. So there's yeah. lots of opportunity for us to leverage the existing products and brand that we have and just sell more of existing bikes because we already have great bikes. Yeah, it's Just a lot of people don't know about them or, or don't know any friends who have them and that there's a, there's a bit of a, 
you know, the networking effect. When you know people who have a bike, they, oh, and they're really happy with it, and then you'll go buy it. Um, that being said, we would we haven't ruled out entirely product expansion, but that's where Marcus has come in and said we're only going to go into products where we can stay true to what our history is, mm-hmm. which is the gravity yeah. side of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Marcus, that's why. Nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, yeah, we're actually talking about a new uh, new product in our lineup. And honestly, a few years ago, I never thought that we will have a drop bar bike in our uh, portfolio. But it happened. Yeah. It happened. Now, now we have one, and uh, we're not talking about a road bike. Of course, we're talking about a gravel bike. So mm-hmm. it's still an off-road bike. And also in this segment, uh, we saw the opportunity to create something special. What could carry our 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 DNA? quite good because you are off-road and uh, you have also parts where maybe it's a little bit rougher and it goes <laughs> yeah. downhill and um, so geometry wise and specification wise um, there were chances to uh, create something new what really fits to us and uh, this is what's uh, what's all about with the scepter with our new um, gravel bike and it wasn't about that we thought, okay, we have to do something to uh, to add to our product portfolio because we want to expand. No, the need more or less came also from from inside, from uh, our team riders, for example. They always ask for a drop-bar bike to, okay. to do training, um, endurance training and so on. And uh, I couldn't see it anymore that they were riding competitors' bikes, uh, <laughs> not white heel labeled. <laughs> so we thought, okay, let's go for that. Yeah. And um, I, I tried it first time two years ago and I also thought yeah that would fit to us definitely because it's fun it's also a fan orientated uh, part not only uh, for for I would say who is the fastest and um, training endurance stuff and whatever so it's it's a fun part included and that's why it's it just fits perfect to us yeah what what did you set out to achieve then how would what kind of goals did you put in place for that that new product so uh, first of all, the goal was uh, to uh, create a product uh, for mountain bikers, mm-hmm. a gravel bike for mountain bikers. So the target group is probably not uh, the road biker um, who is uh, interested into an, um, gravel bikes. So our focus are uh, mountain bikers, like I said, and um, that the geometry and um, when it comes to suspension of the bike, that it's um, on the next level. This yeah. was more or less the goal. Yeah. And uh, Sam, we were out on the bikes today. Talk us a bit about the ride experience from your perspective. Because, I mean, I've ridden a a couple of gravel bikes, not a huge amount. And I spent a little bit of time on the new, can we use the name? I think we can. Scepter. Back in the UK. But this is the first time on uh, wet, slippery (laughs) leaves and roots. And real trails. um, And real trails. It was fun. It was really good fun. Yeah, I... I, I'm also not a drop bar guy. Uh-huh. I've always just ridden mountain bikes and even my, my city bikes are on, on flat bars. But and the drop bar so it's it's awkward for me. Like how did, the first time I rode it I was like, well, where do I even put my hands? And <laughs> how do I how do I do one finger braking? And um but what I what really where I think that bike you totally you know, it's great on gravel roads, uh-huh. like fire trails, okay. It's good. You get a. You can. You feel that you want to push the bike hard, so you yeah. actually going faster, and that's fun yeah, yeah. to go fast. It's not like let's go for a, a you know, a Sunday um, relaxing tour and have a coffee. It's like let's go and and work a bit hard. Yeah. But when you see the the single track on the side of the gravel trail, you're like hey, yeah, I think I'm gonna go over there, 
And all of a sudden, a lot of these, you know, not, I mean, certainly you're not doing super steep technical downhills with that. That's where you need a mountain bike. But if you're on a flowy, particularly slightly uphill where you can, you can have, you know, it's like uphill flow you can <laughs> yeah, achieve yeah. with that bike. Yeah. Uh, super responsive. The, I mean, it's not a lot of, it's a pretty small amount of, of suspension in the front, but it's comfortable enough that, you know, you can take small, you know, small hits and go over roots and some rocks and, yeah, yeah. um, and that I noticed at least for myself, like that's like a perfect bike for me to buy, have by myself. If I'm going to go out on a tour, if I'm going to go out and, and ride and like, I want to go for lunch and, you know, push hard for an hour and, and have fun while doing it. Yeah way more than I can with the mountain bike. Uh, and particularly like when you're pedaling hard, I mean, you know, it's like mountain bike, you're pedaling to get to the place where you can have fun going downhill. So that's more fun going up. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I think it's great to have it in the set. I mean, certainly gravel bike has, has been a huge trend. Um, and I think we certainly took the right approach of addressing that segment or that part of gravel. I mean, gravel biking now in the meanwhile is pretty broad. There's yeah, all kinds yeah. of different gravel bikes. It's not gravel bike doesn't cover any one thing anymore. Yeah. Um, but that's an area that we do think that a lot of customers can experience that bike in a different way than, uh, you know, it's not the, it's not the people going to looking for a commuter bike, uh, to, you know, they want to have a, a gravel bike to get to work with. I mean, you could use it for that, but that's certainly not what it's designed for. It's a, it's a performance gravel bike, that loves to get off the gravel, uh, you know, and do a little bit of trail stuff. So that's from that side, you know, we're, we're really proud of, of what we achieved and we think people have a lot of fun with it. Yeah. And it, I was pretty surprised by the capability of it. It feels quite familiar. Like I, I'm used to drop bars cause I do have a road bike, but the geometry feels kind of more mountain bike. I was really skeptical about the fork cause it's mm -hmm. got 40 mil of travel. And I was like, surely that's not gonna do anything, but yeah. it's actually, like pretty good with yeah. no real downsides. It's not bobbing when you're climbing mm. and stuff like that. But I have to admit, I was never expecting on a gravel bike ride to be stopping and looking at trails that we were going to descend before <laughs> we went down because there was some pretty steep stuff. Yeah. But actually, it was it yeah, was we, all right. I mean, eh? We wouldn't have stopped if, on a it, if it wasn't. No, no I was going to say yeah. if it wasn't wet, we wouldn't have stopped. We yeah. were just gone. It wouldn't have been a problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think today it was a bit uh, unfortunately pretty slick on some of those routes. But that would have been the case on a mountain bike too. Um, yeah, I mean, it was. It, it does. You don't. It complements. Like I said, it's the, well hitting trails. It's like you could choose to take our trail or Izzo trail bike, or you could take the Scepter, and you will be faster on the gravel bike. Yeah. And okay, you can't do, you know, doing big drops is something you don't want to do on that bike. Um, Although you lot were sending a little double today. Yeah, <laughs> I did a little double. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my first double on a gravel bike. Um, I mean, I guess you could say it's similar more to a hardtail, you know, in that yeah, sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. But with the the gravel handlebars and and a bit more upright feel. So, you know, I sometimes I think um, you, know, you you recognize how used you are to a mountain bike when you sit on it, but it it is different, and that makes it fun. You know, it's a different kind of riding, and then yeah. you feel how it's different. And you're like, oh, actually, and you start going your head through all the trails you've been on. Like, oh, I should go ride that trail with this bike. That's that would work, but I wouldn't want to do that other one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that, I think, makes biking exciting again. And I mean, it, it's one of the challenges I think of today. You see the trends also. Like, well, that, that means I need yet another bike. So <laughs> I need an e-bike and an enduro bike and a gravel bike, and probably a trail bike too. I'm like, yeah, 
<laughs> I mean, if, if, if you're trying to maximize good times and love riding a variety of terrain, uh, I think that's certainly a trend we're seeing is that customers are getting more bikes okay, uh, to be able to, to you know, maximize the, the time that they have when they're outside. Yeah. Um, and gravel fits into that really well for us. Similar, But, I mean, it's also, I mean, Marcus and I both ride a lot of e-bike uh, to get more laps in and that's a lot of fun. And I, I have my Capra and, uh, you know, definitely use that on, on – the bigger stuff. Um, but I, yeah, I think there's the, it, it's a great, it's a, it's a cool thing to turn stuff that maybe it's not so interesting on a mountain bike yeah. into something that's more interesting. Yeah. yeah. And any bike on dirt is never a bad time, right? It's always, it's always good fun. How was the development of that bike for you, Marcus? Cause it's a much more simple bike, I guess, than a lot of the product range, but it's also very different to anything you've done before. How did you find it? Yeah, absolutely. But the good, uh, the good thing was that we have um, designers in our department, in our R&D department, who, are, uh, who were already into gravel biking. So they came up also with the idea, how um, can we do it different and what should we do? And um, the only thing what I did in the end of the day at this project was just um, having a look on it that really um, fits to our other products that are product um, portfolio. So I wasn't really involved uh, this time in, in the project, but the guys did a, uh, such a great job. Super happy with that. Very nice. So what does the future hold then? There's the, obviously this big launch and, you know, the opportunity of growth that comes with that. You mentioned other market sectors and different territories and stuff. But how would you summarize? I mean, obviously, we're not going to go into the nitty gritty of the strategy for the next five years. But like, how would you summarize the future for YT? I, mean, I would start by saying we're we're in a situation where we want to double down on our roots, right? I mean, our roots are enduro downhill you know gravity inspired mountain bike that's where mm -hmm. we want to stay um we still as i said before there's all kinds of customers who haven't even been exposed to yt yet so getting ourselves out there being you know and something that marcus has pushed the team also to i mean maybe polarizing is maybe a bit extreme but that's something that yt shouldn't shy away from of uh -huh. saying we're going to put out something that not every customer will like yeah. uh, and say, but if you are into having fun on your bike going down the hill, that's where we want to be. Um, and that, you know, we, we, we've, you know, talked about like cross country bikes. Well, we could, we could do a gravity inspired cross country bikes, but a lot of those cross country riders are really focused on, on weight and uphill speed. Uh, and, you know, if we were to do a cross country bike, it would be a fun downhill cross country bike. Um, we're not working on cross country bikes. We're so not to <laughs> people think that's coming, but I think it will be a lot more, you know, looking at our roots of of racing, of good times on long travel bikes mm -hmm. uh, and unexpected campaigns and, <laughs> uh, and you know, working together with athletes doing really crazy stuff. Uh, and that's what we've done in the past. And, and there's not a reason or we don't see a reason to, to drift away from that because we still see a lot of potential. Uh, of, of continuing and, and, you know, customers who identify with that in their own lives. Uh, and, yeah. Creating the best bikes on the planet and turning YT into a proper lifestyle brand. Okay. Well, when you say lifestyle brand, what, what does that mean to you? That people um, who are maybe not on a bike at this time wearing our logo on the chest or okay. on the hat or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
that's a big challenge to go after, right? It's a fun challenge. Yeah. Looking forward to Excellent. <laughs> Good stuff. And we've talked a bit about the team side of things and the sports marketing piece, and you've had kind of different levels of activity with the YT Mob over the years. I heard a rumor that there might be some YT Mob activity coming up in the future years. Is there anything you can say on that at that point? Yeah, or is it I, I heard the same rumor, and <laughs> <laughs> it sounds uh, that it could be, yeah, definitely. So we will come up with something new or extend definitely yeah. the mob idea and the mob concept and yeah looking forward to but I can't say more at, okay. at the moment sorry but you could but you'd have to kill me yeah. afterwards yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> alright fair enough we should start wrapping up and um, we've got our final four questions that we ask pretty much everyone before we do that though we've got two people very senior in the bike industry you know both huge amounts of experience I'm interested to get your take on advice that you would give personally to people wanting to get into the bike industry at whatever level that happens to be. Who wants to start that off? I can start. Um, so I think, I mean, as I said before, I am looking for people who are looking to transition out of a corporate job or a job they have and come into the bike industry. So I yeah. think that's an important one to say. If people want to get into the bike industry, knowledge from other industries can be super valuable and it shouldn't be seen as a hindrance. I mean, this is for, let's say, professional people who have 10 years work experience. It's maybe different for someone who's just straight, you know, who's 18 or 22. Um, you should recognize that the you do not come to the bike industry to get rich. Yeah. Um, I think that that's one of the trade-offs, right? You work on something that you love with cool people and you get to ride bikes, um, but you don't come. It's not going to be the, the, you're not doing it because it's going to, pay more than working for Amazon. Um, but there are a remark, oh, you look at YT, there are a handful of people who work in product development. There's like, you know, our team is what, 12 or something. There are a, a slightly larger number of people who are doing marketing. Like these are the jobs that people think of when they think bike industry. Mm -hmm. We have a big accounting team. We have human resources. We have... Uh, customer care. There's lots of different jobs that you can do within, at least with our company, that you could do with a different skill set. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's not just about designing bikes. It's about being part of the company and being part of the team that's delivering that. So I, you know, don't think too narrowly. Like, oh, I have to be an engineer to get into the bike industry. No. I mean, if you are great, if you're a car engineer and you want, like, I want to do something cool, then. We have jobs open as as many other. I mean, right now is probably the better time to join the bike industry than ever before because there's so many open roles. Programmers, another one. Like, if you're a programmer and you're looking for a job, like, write me. <laughs> okay. What, is <laughs> there have, like an HR at YT well, Industries? Well, I mean, certainly on our, our webpage, yt-industries.com. Um, you can go to jobs, slash yeah. jobs, and then you can see all the jobs we have open right now. But we have like multiple you know, SAP developer, front-end, back-end developer, like really standard IT jobs, okay. lots of those that we, we could have multiple people into those. Um, so if, you know, if, if that's something that you're interested in, check it out what we have. But I mean, not just us, there's other, you know, companies around the world, yeah, yeah. go look at the job pages there. Most people are hiring these days, so it's a great time to enter. Um, and be aware, you know, I think you should be honest about the fact that you don't have bike industry experience, but I think a lot of bike industry or a lot of bike companies now are looking like we are, you know, seeing that there's a lot of opportunity bringing in uh, people who are, uh, particularly if you're a biker, mm -hmm. uh, that that's a really cool thing to combine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know, look at jobs, 
talk to people. I mean, that's another one. Like we had the family reunion two weeks last weekend and just talking to customers who come by and they're like, start talking to you. Like they realize you're the CEO and then they start talking like, well, yeah, I don't know if you're interested in that. We'll go talk. To, I mean, the CFO is standing right over there and go talk to him if you're interested in the, in a finance job. Um, people ping me on LinkedIn actually quite often like looking for a job. I'm like, uh-huh. well, here's the website. Just go and apply. I look forward to the application. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to sort them out with a job, but, uh, um, I, I, it's if if you're considering it, do it now. Yeah, and like you said, network was the way that you found your way in, right? Yeah, that so, was, I mean that's that, that's hard. You can't. Yes, you can't. It's not one thing that's going to get it. So then you have to just start talking to people. Yeah, yeah, you can go to events and chat to brands, and that's right. Yeah, and um, and talk to other people who maybe you even know who worked in the bike industry because you know then you get introductions and maybe even do research around which bike companies are located where and see where their headquarters are. I mean, nowadays you have remote work too. I mean, almost we're, we're doing remote hiring to, on, on surf, definitely certain jobs. Yeah. Uh, and I assume that's going to be similar across other bike companies. So it's a, it's a good time. It's a good time. Yeah. Get involved. Marcus, what advice would you give people? Yeah, basically it's the same what, what Sam said. Um, don't be afraid to reach out to the company you want to work for because it's definitely way more fun to work in an industry when we talk about sports and mountain biking and stuff like that and uh, compared to other uh, industries and there are so many opportunities out there um, that's that's um, that's really cool so um, yeah but don't expect to be get uh, to get rich that's the same what <laughs> I what I say yeah do you think that will change as the bike industry kind of grows and professionalizes do you think there will be yeah because when you when you compare it nowadays to the automotive industry for example and uh, Sam already talked a lot about what's different um, in the bike industry to a corporate big business mm. that um, everything regarding IT, SAP, not connected to, to, to our vendors and, and whatever. I think uh, when everything grows and gets more professional, I think there's also a chance to earn more money and to be more involved. Yeah. Future, um, we're all future millionaires, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I think there's also... The, the mix of jobs, I think that's the important one, also is going to change. And you will see average salaries within the bike increase rise as it has at YT. Uh-huh. But that's not just because we're paying more. It's because the kinds of roles we need to grow are developers. Mm-hmm. And if you want to get developers, you have to pay them more than somebody who works in customer care. That's you know that specialty knowledge yeah, yeah. and that skill set is expensive. Although I am sure we will pay less for our developers than SAP would to get their developers. Yeah. Um, and that's the let's say the the advantage we have. We can attract people with less money, um, but we can also provide. You know, it's a lot cooler to work as a developer for a cool brand doing cool products than you know working for some company that you have no identification with the product. So I I think it'll always be under average, or always it'll, it'll be it will be under average for what you could get. Uh-huh. But any business that's where there's passion involved, I would say media is similar. You know, people who want to work in media. Uh, and are willing to take less money because it's cool. Yeah, you know, making movies or or television shows, um, um, and that's or I mean, advertising agencies is another one. You know, like they're notoriously pay really really poor, and people are work like crazy. Yeah, because it's cool to work in advertising, um, or they learn a lot. Um, so uh, that, but overall, yes, I would assume that every, the kinds of people we need, it's a lot more specialty background. Yeah, uh, and even like our engineers, it's like you have to be able to do simulations, and you know, there's a lot of things that come in now that maybe didn't exist ten years ago. 
um, so that the, the you know the way that you the education you're getting and the skills that you're using and it's it's changing. All right, let's do these final four questions, Marcus. We're going to start with you, and then we'll go between you on each question. The first of those is if our listeners had 150 pounds, which is about 170 euros, or it was yesterday. Who knows what it is today? Uh, to improve their performance on a bike, what would you recommend they go and spend it on? <laughs> Honestly, get a membership at the fitness club. Okay, uh, okay, I could, I should have expected yeah. that, but it definitely makes a difference. Where I've noticed yeah. how much better I can ride my bike when yeah. I'm in decent shape. Absolutely. When you look at downhill races, for example, um, what forces um, appear there when you go downhill like like crazy fast, and it definitely makes sense to also go into a little bit weightlifting, stretching, things like that. So yeah. that helps a lot. Definitely. Have you found certain things that have helped you from, you know, with your injury? Obviously, that's fairly significant yeah. as, as remaining active and mobile being a big part of your ability to continue doing what you want to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, even if I have to take care on, on uh, certain exercises, I uh, do a lot of gym work still. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a little bit into CrossFit, but I'm um, also doing things like like uh, stretching, yoga, all the stuff to get um, mobility in. Yeah. And, yeah, looking after yourself. Good stuff. So, Sam, what about you? 150 pounds, 170 euros. Where's it going? <laughs> the biggest, I mean, I'm, I talked about earlier, like I feel like I'm getting every day I'm getting better biking right now biking and that's coming predominantly from biking with doing laps <laughs> and biking with people who are a lot better than me yeah so I would probably say find my friends who I know are a lot better than me and are maybe not so interested in hanging out with me and I'd say like <laughs> I'll buy you dinner or I'll uh, I'll buy beers let's go for a ride yeah and then just sit on their back tire buy yourself um, fast friends yeah <laughs> but uh that, yeah that's the thing that i think would uh for me right now in my in my stage of, of like just being exposed and seeing how people ride down more technical terrain and uh -huh. what speed i mean it's like the basics of you know what speed to go over if there's double like you need people who know the route the yeah, routes to and tell you, need you to see somebody to do that and, yeah and give you a bit of motivation at least for me to to try the, the tougher things and take a bit more risks and 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 that happened that yeah so I guess it's, uh, what is it, um, bribing your friends. Yeah, that sounds like a good day out. <laughs> good stuff. All right, the next one, and this is to you, Marcus, initially. If you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him? Um, be, more, uh, be more patient. Okay. Sometimes. Yeah. Not yeah. always, but sometimes be a little bit more patient. Can you give a, an example maybe if it's not too kind of personal or no, it's like, um, for example, uh, business-wise, um, when I sit together with the guys from the development department and we talk about new frames and new stuff and say, okay, that will take around about two years. It's, it, it's, it's like that, okay? It takes two years, but I'm not so patient. That I always say, okay, we have to yeah, get it faster. Yeah. Small little things. But part of that, you know, that energy and that drive is probably yeah. what's got the business to where it is now, right? You yeah. are probably doing things, right? You might not be doing a two-year task in two weeks, but you might have bought it down yeah. from two years to yeah. 18 months, maybe. That's why I said sometimes, uh, sometimes it's yeah. also good to really push and to keep the pressure high and yeah, yeah. to expect things faster. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it's also good to, yeah, let things run for a while and uh -huh. see how it, is, how it happens. Yeah. All right. Sam, what about you? So in my when I was sixteen, 
when I look back at it now, I would say I was really shy. Okay. Uh, and it's interesting because now like I have no problem standing up in front of big crowds and talking and, and at the time though, I was really self-conscious uh -huh. of myself as a, you know, how I not in, not so much in, in let's say my intellectual ability, but more so in my social. Okay. Uh, and I think there I would have just patted myself on the shoulder and be like, you know, the awkward thing is me being awkward <laughs> and me being myself is not awkward. So, uh, that's, that's what I would have said. Would, did you do anything consciously to improve on that yes. weakness? Okay. Can you tell yeah. us a bit so about that what was, you did? So moving to a new country. Okay. So that I, I, certainly for me when I was, I went through that until I was 20 years old When I was 20, I studied abroad in France Yeah. and I went to France and when you move to a new place, and I was going with a whole, I mean, there was people on my program, so I was not by myself, uh -huh. but none of those people knew me. And when you go to a new place and nobody knows you, it gives you an opportunity to press the reset button and say, and I did at that time, like, I, I shaved my head and I was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to go and I'm going to be the person that I've, I've wanted to be the last couple of yeah, years. Yeah. And there's nobody who knows me who's going to be like, what's up with you? Like, you're acting differently. <laughs> and I'm going to. I guess, get out there and, and, and try to do it. And for me, it felt really awkward at first, but nobody even commented on it. Yeah. And like I felt like I was trying too hard maybe even. Um, but for everybody else, it was like, well, that's Sam, I guess. And and then when I did that one year and it worked, and I was really happy. I mean, it, yeah. was, I mean, it was a little weird at the beginning maybe, but I was really happy with the, you know, my ability to engage people and make friends. And like I realized that you're not, you don't make friends by sitting back and doing nothing. You make friends by getting out there, yeah. by, by engaging with people and uh, building relationships and having common experiences. And if you're not out there doing it, you're not making friends. Yeah, so yeah. I brought that back with me. And, and from that moment, then it, it took it. So that was putting myself in an opportunity to not, you know, not, I mean, I shouldn't say that my friends are dragging my down because I had really good friends beforehand, uh -huh. but kind of getting myself out of my usual environment yeah. allowed me to take a to take a bit more of a you know live uncaged. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Would you say you identify as an introvert? Absolutely not. Now okay. at the time, yes. I, uh -huh. I mean I'd say I mean I've I've taken personality tests and I'm on the hundred percent extrovert scale. Okay. You know, I get yeah. all my energy from other people. Yeah. I don't need and maybe Marcus is a bit different on this one, but like if I'm down and I'm and I, you know, I'm like exhausted. Like I get energy by seeing people and talking okay. to them. But when you went through that phase of moving abroad and, and creating Sam version 2.0, like it was that a drain on your energy? Did you have to manage that? No. Or did you find that just felt right? I would say it, it, I immediately, when I, when I started doing it, I had so much positive feedback from it or for myself. Like I felt so uh -huh. much better about myself and that made me even more interesting and, and, I don't know. It allowed me to engage even more with people. And that, yeah. that, so that was like a flywheel then. Like I just yeah, yeah. did it more and more. And then I got really addicted to it. And, and yeah. And then it was like, wow, I missed out on like, why didn't I do this before? So that, that was a bit, I don't know if I regret because I mean, it's part of your own, your own yeah, development. It's a, it's, you have to learn the lessons right yeah. along the way. Everything's part of the bigger picture somehow, I guess. All right. Next one. If you could have a coaching session from anyone past or present, Marcus, who would it be and what would you want to learn? And this is often like a riding focused thing, but it doesn't have to be. It can be like life skills or business or whatever. 
Yeah, in this case or in my case, it, it isn't a writing kind of thing. It's a driving kind of okay. thing. Okay. Because uh, everybody who knows me knows that I'm uh, quite into cars as well. So uh -huh. my passion is for everything with wheels, not yeah. only two wheels, also, also four wheels. And if I could get a coaching session from Ken Block, how to drift a car, <laughs> uh, that would be fucking amazing. He rides, right? <laughs> yes, he rides as well. Yeah. Have, yeah. You, have you had the chance to meet him through no, the industry not, yet or not? Not so far. Surely yeah. there's a YT advertising campaign with Ken Block in it. Come Should on. Be. <laughs> you can engineer yeah. you can engineer this yeah. coaching yeah. session really yeah. easily. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. that's that's gotta be doable, right? <laughs> What about you, Sam? So I would still be on the riding side and my riding skills are not so great that I need a super expert. Um and I think when I think about having a good time riding, it's also not just the riding, it's like what you talk about while you're riding yeah. and a lot of times mountain biking, like you do a lot of uphill biking and it's a good time to talk to. Yeah. Uh, and I love characters. Uh, so one of my good friends is, you know, he keeps things going and tells stories all the time. And one of the, one of our athletes who I haven't met yet is Brett Tibby. Oh, and yeah, I, and okay. I've heard so much what about, yeah, I was like, okay. So I, I couldn't go to Whistler this year, but I'll go next year and then I'll get to go on a ride with him and have him enter. I'll be, I, I, I've heard I will be entertained. I, I, can, I can imagine. <laughs> you will. And, you will. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then get a chance to ride too, right? Because uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure he's a, a significantly better rider than me too. So I'll, I'll learn some stuff too. Yeah. But have fun while doing it. Definitely got some stories and he knows how to tell them, I think. from uh, I've never met the guy, but like I've definitely heard him talk and it's, it's really engaging. It's cool stuff. All right, last one. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Um, two things. Um, the first thing is for for the body. The second thing is for the soul. I would say first thing for the body is I exercise every day something. Mm -hmm. It don't have to be weightlifting or uh, biking. It could be anything. So something for your body, not only working business and with your brain. So uh, this is something what I really really need and where I, I really feel a benefit. Uh -huh. And for the soul, I have a glass of wine every day for lunch. And nice. That's, yeah. And I got used to it over years. My doctor say still everything okay, so I don't have to worry. Yeah, I'm not an alcoholic so far, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that feels good and that uh, benefits me. And is that like, is it the same wine every day? Are you experimenting? Are you traveling around the world in this little session? Like? Okay, uh, experimenting with wine, I do mostly after dinner. Okay, but, uh, <laughs> so the lunch wine is basically most of the time the same. Okay, yeah. and what is it? Do you it's mind a, sharing? Yeah, it's a it's a Sauvignon Blanc. Uh huh. Uh, white wine because if I would drink red wine for lunch I would fall asleep okay, yeah, afterwards yeah, so yeah. and just one glass yeah. that's fine that's enough German wine uh, Italian Italian wine yeah. okay nice good stuff so for me um, I would actually say thanking someone for something that they did okay and this is kind of maybe I'm turning your question around a little bit in the first sense being appreciative of the people around you for things they're doing, even small things, is so beneficial for those people to mm -hmm. get just the recognition that, um, and, you know, we, we always get the feedback even in, I mean, at YT that we're not appreciative enough. And, and you never really can be too appreciative of people around you. Yeah. Um, but I do try to spend every day, I like, okay, I need to send some email, even if it's just one sentence or a, um, an instant message, somebody in the company be like, thank you for doing this. Like, it really means a lot to me or maybe even better explain why it was better, but at least thanking them for it, um, or even privately. 
helping that person, but also on the other hand, and I, I, coming back to why it helps me, it's also if you're appreciative of people, it makes them more likely to help you again in the future. True. Yeah. So this is one that is kind of a you know you, you're paying you're paying back for what they're doing, and you're putting money in the bank to get favors and help in the future. Yeah. Uh, and you know, ideally, you do it in person and sit someone look at them in the eyes and say, you know, that 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 was really great that you did this, and and talking about it more from why it was good for mm-hmm. you uh, briefly, um, and I think that's a uh, something that we don't do that much in society is really sitting down and thanking people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so that that's handwritten notes is another great one that nobody does anymore. You take out, you have like three by five cards and you can write a quick handwritten note to somebody. Just put, if you have, re, if you have legible handwriting, it's maybe <laughs> an important one. Um, but that uh, writing a postcard, um, those are things that like, nobody does anymore. And they yeah. really, they, they're, they're memorable. Yeah. But I bet you do that with a smile on your face, right? Like, and anything that makes you smile has got to be a good thing in your yeah. day. Because yeah. you're not going to write that with with grumpy face on the go, are you? Like, right, you're, yeah. you're enjoying that. Yeah. It's nice to say thank you, right? It's a pleasant experience. Yeah. So yeah. they benefit, you benefit. Everyone's a winner. Yeah. So on that note, thank you. <laughs> I've had a really lovely day. We had a great bike ride. It's been really fun chatting. Thanks for welcoming me into the YT family here today. I've, I've definitely had a really good experience. If people want to find out more, where should they be looking? The website. Which is? YT hyphen minus industries <laughs> whichever would country you and if you say it's a hyphen or a minus uh, ytindustries.com um, yeah and on and Instagram, socials Instagram Facebook yeah alright I will put links to the website YouTube, and cool. all the social channels yeah. and the YouTube into the show notes for this episode so people can find it but thank you it's been fun uh, we've got food to eat and uh, maybe some beers to drink. Who knows? Definitely. But uh, <laughs> yeah, all the best. It's been yeah. really cool to see how YT's evolved, how it's retained that soul and that DNA, but also how it's changing and professionalizing and how that's going to benefit or is benefiting everyone yeah. out there that rides yeah. a YT. So yeah. good work. Keep it up. Looking forward to seeing where it goes next. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank Thanks, you. Chris. Nice it's, one. it's really an honor. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. All right, that's it for this episode with Marcus and Sam. I really hope you've enjoyed it. A massive thanks to YT for inviting me out to record the episode and to spend some time riding with the team on their awesome new gravel bike, the Scepter. And we even squeezed in a few e-bike laps on the decoy, which was a lot of fun too. As a downtime listener, YT are offering you an extra £100 or dollars or euros, depending on where you are, off their entire range. All you need to do is to select I have a voucher at the bottom left corner at checkout and use the code DOWNTIME2008. That's DOWNTIME with a capital D, no space, then the number 2008 over at yt-industries.com. That code is valid for a maximum of 200 uses and runs until the 31st of March 2023. Also, a massive thanks to Earshots for supporting this episode. If you want headphones that are the perfect fit for riding, running or training, or just for listening to your favourite podcast, then look no further than Earshots. As a downtime listener, Earshots are giving you 10% off. All you need to do is to enter the code DOWNTIME22 at the checkout over on Earshots.com, and the discount will be applied at the final stage of the checkout process. That's downtime, all uppercase, no space, then the number 22 over at Earshots.com. Okay, here are a few other links that might be useful to you too. Downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Forward slash shop to support the show by getting yourself some brand new merch. And forward slash EP if you want to get your hands on copies of our lovely print project, Downtime EP. 
As always, spread the word, tell your rider mates, and make sure as many people as possible are listening. That's it for today. We're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride. <laughs>